Blog Talk Radio. are going to take up a lot of time, but uh, we'll be going through the entire main card and then, you know, the usual bits through the prelims. Uh, it was, again, there were some, uh, the main card delivered in spades. There was some good stuff on the prelims. There was some weird stuff on the prelims. It was just an exceptional example of the good and the weird in MMA. Thankfully, none of the bad. There weren't any really bad fights. I mean, Brown and Gall was a little iffy, but if that's the worst fight on any given card, you're doing pretty good. Uh, we will also, after we go through that, be previewing UFC Fight Night 120. Uh, Poirier versus Pettis is your main event. Uh, Matt Brown's fighting Diego Sanchez. I think Matt Brown has said this will be his last fight. Uh, Andre Arlovsky's going to get killed. We'll, we'll go through that card. It's not a bad free TV card. Uh, so you can look forward to that. If you have a question or a comment that you would like uh, the panel here to address, please feel free to call in at 323-657-0901. If you would rather send questions or comments and over the Internet in a different format, please feel free to leave comments on the Radlich and Broadcasting Network Facebook page, which you can like and get updates on you know, things that are going on. And you can leave questions or comments on the on the uh, post that has this player embedded on it. I can keep track of those pretty easily. And if you feel so inclined, you are welcome to tweet me. I am at WinfreeMMA. That's W-I-N-F-R-E-E-M-M-A. If you do the Twitter thing, and I don't blame you if you don't, uh, feel free to send me questions, comments. Uh, welcome to all of it. So thank you all very much. All right. I believe that's all we have by way of announcements. Let's introduce the panel. 
because I've got uh, you know both of them back for this one. Because really, if you don't have something to say about UFC 217, again, I really, I really do have to question whether or not you're a fan of MMA because this had something for everybody. It seemed like. Uh, here with me, still reveling in the success of his Houston Astros in the World Series, 411 Mania's resident jack of all trades, Jeff Harris is with us again. How are you doing this evening, Jeff? Go Astros, everybody. I may be in Los Angeles, but it's no longer called Los Angeles. It's called L.A. for Los Astros. The Astros are now the World Series champions after 55 years, and it's just going to keep on happening, so everybody better get used to it. So go Astros, and this is the World Series Houston Astros Recap Podcast. It's called the Ground and Pound Radio Show because it's about how the Houston Astros ground and pounded the L.A. Dodgers, the Los Astros Dodgers, in seven games. So buckle up and get ready for the Ground and Pound Astros World Series Podcast. Go Astros. All right, and from the East Coast, the uh, he unfortunately lives in New Jersey. I have to make fun of him every now and then for that. Uh, our resident pugilistic authority, amateur boxing historian, and really somebody should pay him for the amount of knowledge he has. Somebody out there, like some eccentric billionaire who just wants a boxing aficionado on retainer, call this guy. Pat Mullen, how are you doing, Pat? I am available for such a job. I'm doing great. Uh, not, as, not as great as Jeff, who deserves uh, a lot of uh, credit for being an Astros fan. I know what it's like to be a long-suffering fan of a team until you finally reach that pinnacle. They got there with a great team, with one of the greatest moments in sports with Evan Gaddis, who seven years ago was working as a janitor, is now a World Series champion. Congrats to Carlos Beltran on his 20-year exodus to get a World Series title. Uh, and congrats to the city of Houston, which has gone through a lot of terrible things lately. And it's really cool to see them have a moment to lift everybody up and celebrate. All right, let's start with the main event here. Um, you know, I, pre- I want to go on record. I said last week that if I were picking logically, I would pick Michael Bisbing via TKO inside of three rounds, but I wasn't picking logically. I went with what would amuse me the most, and that would be George St. Pierre winning the middleweight title and then retiring. And half of that equation happened. George St. Pierre choked Michael Bisbing unconscious with a rear naked choke in the third round. Um, he didn't retire, but he did kind of hint that he might not be sticking around at middleweight, which works for me as well. If he vacates the belt to go fight Tyron Woodley, I, I would be equally as pleased. Or vacates uh, just, the belt to fight Conor McGregor. That's also a possibility, and I would laugh if that I, – I would so laugh if that actually happens because it's the most you meaningless Connor, fight in the world. You know Connor was going to make a play for that fight. Yeah. It's the most meaningless fight in the whole world for those two to fight. But there's so much money to be made that there's a good chance they will, Tec- and I would laugh heartily. It's, as, not meaning, it, it's not meaningless because it would be the biggest fight of all time for MMA. Uh, let me rephrase. On a meritocratic standpoint, it has no meaning. If you right. have to make money, yes, it makes a lot of sense. Um, this was a weird. This was a weird fight. It was a good fight. It was. It was. A good fight, I don't though. mean to say it was bad. I mean to say just it was 
so different from what I expected it to be in terms of how it played out. George had a really good first round. They were both doing a lot of, you know, getting a feeling out. There was a lot of range finding with, you know, meaningless kicks, a lot of jabbing. Michael six-inch jab. Both men have excellent jabs. Um, George's is not better if night. you just – Okay, yeah, not – in general. Come on, work with me here. <laughs> in general, both men have really excellent jabs. Um, if you go just jab for jab, GSP's is better technically, but normally Bisbing builds off of his much better. He uses it to set things up, whereas George kind of jabs because it's a really efficient technique that he's really good at. And they both, again, they did some kicking, they did some jabbing. George also brought out the uh, the overhand right, which was a really odd choice. He does that's not a punch he throws a lot. And I don't just mean like the right hand in general. He's normally much better about his punches being straight. And he was looping that one, and it he clipped Bisbing more than once. Uh, uh, super he, punch, and it got him pretty good. With- yeah, he yeah, caught him right on super, the back of his heels with that. Yeah, the Superman jab, which I, 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 I'm, I don't know why I'm the only one who remembers that George does that, but apparently I am. Like, he John landed Fitch at that one. When's the last time you saw that? Like, no, George. He used that against Johnny Hendricks. He used it against John Fitch. He used it against B.J. Penn both times, I seem to recall. Like, no, that's kind of a staple of his offense. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really surprised more people haven't adopted it. It's a good technique. Here comes the Superman punch. Here you go, George. Fuck you. <laughs> uh, the second round, George slowed down a little bit. I, uh, Bisbing got a slightly better feel for things. He started countering better. Uh, his right was landing more often. So we were around a piece going into the third round, and George starts the third round, and he does seem to be slowing. Like He's clearly not used to really fighting at, at 185. But to his supreme credit, he spent the first two rounds getting Bisbing thinking about his right. And between Bisbing's right eye being more than a little bit of a liability and him starting to now think more about George as, you know, as a, his heavy offense coming from the right-hand side of, you know, coming from his right, he baited him into an exchange and absolutely floored him with a left hook. He jumped into Bisbing's guard, which is kind of a bad habit that GSP has had whenever he hurts somebody. He is happy to jump into their guard rather than try to take a dominant position. He threw a bunch of elbows and punches and was very, he was kind of close to getting a TKO, but Bisbing was recovering. So George, and one of his, one of his you know, bits of like mid-fight IQ, mid-fight genius actually stops punching and kind of steps back so Bisbing will sit up to try and, you know, get off of his back. As he sits up, George takes his back, locks in the rear naked choke as Bisbing is still slightly out of it, and proceeds to choke him unconscious because Bisbing decided not to tap. That was his first actual submission win since December 2007 over Matt Hughes. His first finish since he made BJ Penn quit between rounds four and five. Um, right. It was a really phenomenal thing, moment. It was an odd performance from both men because, like, I don't think any of us believed Michael Bisping was the best middleweight in the world. 
I don't think anyone outside of Bisping and his immediate family believed that. Technically, he's still not. It's it's not a disputed title. It's not an excuse me. It's not an undisputed title. So he's not yeah, the best I mean, weight in the world. But the, uh, again, this was just an odd performance from both men in terms of how things played out. Um, you know, George looked a little bit rusty relative to what he used to be because he used to be, you know, a nearly unstoppable machine. Uh, you know, up until his last, you know, couple of fights, but he's still there's still some issues there. He still gets hit a lot more than he used to. His takedowns are much more technical now than they used to be and they you know, he he lost a little bit of his explosive drive, but he gained upper body strength for some control aspects. Well, he hit he hit uh, all of his takedowns on Bisbing. The early takedowns, Bisbing was able to quickly get back up from them. And then in the last bis- one, he was Bisbing. Let me just finish this thought. Like Bisbing was throwing a lot of elbows off of his back and really doing more damage off of his back than GSP was doing on top. Yeah, that whole yeah, sequence, and- Bisbing was the one winning. And Bisbing's always been a difficult guy, not so much to get down, but to keep down. Um, you know, he's had bigger, stronger wrestlers like Chael Sonnen have a very hard time keeping pinned down to the mat. Uh, he, and even George, who is a lot bigger than when we last saw him, had a hard time keeping him down. And when he did keep him down, in reality, it was because Michael was willingly on his back fighting off of it and fighting better than you'll see 90% of guys fight because he was the one doling out the damage with those short elbows that not only cut GSP, but he wasn't taking much damage in return from GSP. Yeah, he, there was a there were some interesting things here, but George St. Pierre, after a four-year hiatus, is now the middleweight champion of the world. It's the weirdest... I've said a lot of weird things that pertain to MMA, and there's a couple more that I'll be saying later on as we go through this card. That's a weird one. That's right up there with some of the weirdest realities I've that now, we've had to adjust to. There was a time where I really believed GSP Anderson Silva when Anderson Silva was king of the middleweights and GSP was king of the welterweights. And I don't know if this fight justifies that. And I don't even know if GSP would have been able to beat a prime Anderson Silva. But I think had GSP tried to win at middleweight, I think he, I don't know if he would have been like as dominant as he was at welterweight, but I think he would have been fairly competitive just based off this performance as well. Yeah, th- I, he certainly would have. Um, but again, that is our new reality is George St. Pierre, middleweight champion. Um, Pat, I want to start with you because again, like this was an exciting fight in the sense that there were things happening. But, again, I was a little bit let down by the technical aspects of both guys because both guys are – I mean, George George's technique gets praised all the time, whereas Bisbing's, I think, gets overlooked. Uh, this just – this didn't play out a whole lot the way I expected it to, and I'm curious as to, you know, how how was this fight for you outside of, you know, the final uh, – apart from the endings, the actual action – you know, this fight was interesting in a lot of ways. Um, Michael Bisping is one of those weird guys in that as soon as you start praising him, he does something that makes you feel you've overrated him drastically. And as soon as he does something 
good. You feel like you've underrated him. But this is one of those fights where he had ample opportunity to show that he was better than a lot what his detractors say he is, and he didn't do it. Um, you know, I, I joked about his jab earlier. Michael usually does good work off of his jab, and very rarely did he do that here despite opportunity. I saw him land two good right crosses behind his jab during the fight over three rounds. And George didn't make himself necessarily very difficult to hit here. Um, Michael's jab oftentimes was what I call the six-inch jab, where he's not actually throwing the punch in the hopes of landing it. He's just kind of sticking it because he wants to draw a reaction from George and wants to make George take a step back, but doesn't want to commit to the punch. And that didn't help him. He needed to have George in closer proximity to him so he could hit him and follow up with it. I also saw, and commentary was pretty open about commenting on this, George breathing heavy, looking slower and tired with the upper body mass. I never saw Bisping throw a strike to the body with his hands, his feet, anything. I don't understand why he didn't go there. Bisping, does he even usually, does he ever really try to go for the body? He throws body kicks every now and then. I don't really see him punch to the body very often. But I've seen him work kicks towards the body, which is normal for a guy who fights at range. But I didn't see him throw one in this fight. And maybe it was out of fear that he was going to get taken down. But at the same time, if you look at the opportunities where George took him down, it was when George was in close and hooked a single. I mean, where he was really, and he's really always been more of a power double leg takedown artist. But his single leg here was what he did better work with, and it was in close when he got it. Bisping was looking he was looking a little tired too though. And I wonder I wonder how seriously he took I think he did not give GSP the respect he probably should have. I don't I don't even know that it was a respect thing. Uh, we could talk more about that, you know, in a in a fight uh, two away from this one. But this one it just this is everybody who's a detractor of Michael Bisping, this is a fight they'll point to and say this is the Michael Bisping that's overrated, and I don't disagree with them. Yeah, I want to mention something about this because I've I said last week, and bear in mind I do stand by this, but I feel I didn't adequately explain myself. Uh, I said last week that Michael Bisping's title reign coming into this fight was bordering on the farcical, and I asked last night. I tried something new just because I was genuinely I'm always worried about because I've been more than guilty of this in the past, not taking other people's perspectives into proper consideration or assuming my perspective is mirrored by, you know, the greater populace, so on and so forth. So I asked anyone who felt interested in commenting about it, either in my coverage or in the report last night, what were their thoughts and feelings on Bisbing's title reign? Because, again, I know my position. I wanted to know other people's. And... I got some interesting responses. Um, There were a lot of people who felt he was being not unfairly criticized, but over-criticized for it. Uh, There were some people who were just perfectly content with it. Uh, There there might have been one or two that actually kind of mirrored mine, which was weird. But... When I said that, you know, I believe Michael Bisbing's title reign was, you know, again, 
and after this loss, like there's a lot of people who are going to point to it as one of the worst title reigns in UFC history. And there's certainly an argument that can be made that way. I want to make it very clear that I do not believe that is my perspective on his career as a whole. I he's mean, a Hall of Famer. Ha- you can't deny he's a Hall of Famer at this point. I no, wouldn't put him in Hall of Fame. Yeah, I would for many reasons. I know he's got, he's he got 20, 20 UFC wins, and that's a great accomplishment. But it, he's one of those guys who kind of stuck around – but was never able to really solidify himself as one of the best. And I know he won the middleweight title, but how many guys are there that were they're the champion of the division and everybody else is pointing to three guys who they feel are definitively better than that guy? Well, hang on. And aren't wrong. It's a weird, it, it was a weird circumstance. That's not really up for debate. I feel Bisbing's career is one that should be celebrated for for some of its aspects, and he probably will wind up in the UFC Hall of Fame, and I won't complain about it. I I just want to make it clear that you know, the way his title reign was handled by all parties, so he bears some culpability, the UFC bears some culpability, I think it's deeply unfortunate that it was handled the way it was because it detracts from what he is he as a, a fighter overall and what he has meant duck, at times to the UFC. He was a lame duck champion, and it's disappointing. But then, if you want to defend Bisping, you can say, okay, he's had, a lo- he's had a long career, he worked really hard, he's trying to, he's trying to, he was trying to go out by building a legacy, he wanted, he wanted big fights, he wanted money fights to kind of uh, give himself a nest egg and to kind of take care of his family and make and make a, as much money as he could before he he wanted to cash out. He was trying to cash out, and, and if you, I'm not saying I agree with that, but that's what you can say in defense of Bisping. If that's what he was trying to do during a title run, which I would say, in my opinion, was a lame duck title run. But I, don't know, I guess I'm old school in the sense that when we're talking about a guy who is in the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame for me should be for the elite level competitors, and well, I mean, look, he knocked Michael out was Luke never Rockles. elite. Michael yeah, but Michael Luke was Rockles. never. Yeah, but Michael's never been established as an elite guy in terms of even and again. Well, here's what I Here's what I would say. No, let me say this. Here's okay, what I would say. The guys who Michael lost to, who are arguably elite. Argue, you know, they, they they were using PEDs, or they got, or they failed drug tests. Bisbing never failed a drug test in his entire career, or they had, yep. you know, questionable help with uh, with uh, with testosterone replacement therapy, which is arguably a legal PED that fighters got by using for years, including Dan Henderson, including Vitor Belfort, Shale Sonnen, who also later failed drug tests. Well, I mean. Chael Sonnen's probably not in the elite conversation, but then Dan Henderson, Vitor Belfort, former, you know, former champions, uh, multiple weight classes. Dan Henderson's a former Olympic wrestler. Um, you got, you can't, you can't put the Olympic wrestler thing in there though. Cause that doesn't have any bearing on this, but all right. Well, Vonderlei, Vonderlei Silva, uh, who, you know, used to be one of the top light heavyweights in the world. There's another one. Um, so there you go. 
guy. Yeah, but guy, he's he he's fun. catching a lot of these he's catching a lot of these guys too on the downsides of their careers. I mean, you know, and again, he's got losses to guys like Tim Kennedy, who I, I love Tim Kennedy, but Tim Kennedy's nothing special as a fighter, and he still uh, walked away with the win. Special. All right, all right, hang on. Special, but at that point, Tim Kennedy was in the top five middleweights in the world, and even every yeah, but fighter, like my my, my point's Chad, more along the lines of. Every fighter has losses like that. Every fighter does. Yeah, but know? would you put Michael Bisping on the same level as GSP, Anderson Silva, the best of the best? No, and that's really what the Hall of Fame is for, the I best mean, of the best. Uh, hang on. Okay, okay, hang on. If I may, the reason I would be I mean, okay Craig, with him I mean, going I would, into the – I wouldn't consider Craig Biggio uh, the very best of the best, uh, but he's in the Hall of Fame. Basically, yeah, but he's also got – a career average over 300, which is basically minimum criteria. He's the all-time right. leader in walks because he's a feared hitter. Craig Biggio was among the best of the best when it comes to second baseman. Bisping has a lot of those stats, too. He, he has uh, – or, or, or at one point he had uh, – um, he's tied for most wins in the UFC. He's the first, he's the first ever um, British UFC champion. No, no fighter British doesn't mean anything. Fight. Yeah, first I mean, me first I mean, look, a lot if of the UFC stats, hang on a lot of those stats you just said Pat don't really mean anything either but like hang you know, on all right let's not either matter or they don't hang on the reason I'd be okay with him going into the UFC Hall of Fame is that the UFC Hall of Fame has pretty clearly established what their criteria is and I would put Michael Bisbing absolutely on par with Forrest Griffin and Forrest Griffin is in the UFC Hall of Fame Yeah, is he in there, yeah, or is the fight in there? I'm not, no, I'm not, no, it's Forrest not, is in the Hall of Fame. Forrest oh, is in individually, and his fight with Stefan Bonner is in the Hall of Fame. He shouldn't be in there either. That's embarrassing to them. Well, Forrest, no, Forrest, not, Forrest versus Bonner is in the Hall of Fame. It's the fight. Oh, Forrest isn't? I thought they well, had inducted Forrest. Yeah. Well, yeah, technically they inducted him, but it's for they're recognizing the fight. The fight they itself, not his career. I could have done him individually, but okay. It's not no, uh, not individually. It's his career. Tito is in there individually. Forrest is not. It's Forrest okay. versus Bonner. Trigg versus Hughes too is in there, and I think Hugh, Hughes might be in there individually as Hughes well. Hughes is in there individually. Hughes is in, and deservedly so. Okay. Now, I mean, but look, they'll probably put Forrest in individually. He built, sport. he built. He built and opened up the sport for England. He made he made MMA viable for England and, and opened up the I don't know that I'd go audience. that far, but that's neither here yeah, nor there. He, uh, again, yeah. I'd be okay with him going in because I know what the UFC's basic level of criteria and acceptance is. And if I were building a you know my own personal Hall of Fame, um, geez, depending on how many slots I had, he might sneak in. But with the UFCs and what I know their criteria to be. He'll probably wind up there. I mean, Joe Lozon will probably wind up there for his sheer number of post-fight bonuses, which is another – I mean, again, we can we can debate the merits of the UFC's Hall of Fame all we want until they recognize Frank Shamrock. I still kind of argue it's not you, – you, like there's a major glaring omission there that they refuse to rectify. Yeah, he's, he's the Bruno Randy Savage of that Hall of Fame. But anyway, back to the you know, the actual moment here. Um, Jeff, where do you think George goes from here? I mean, did you get a – does he's he actually defend murdered. the middleweight he's belt against Robert murdered. Whitaker? He's going to get murdered by Robert Whitaker. That's where he goes next. Um, 
I mean, I if like they have that team. fight, yeah, Bobby Knuckles is going to end him. Yeah. Um, I still think he goes I after mean, Woodley. I don't think I don't think Dana White. I mean, GSP didn't even want. He found that fight untenable, and 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 uh. And I know Woodley would love that fight, but I mean, no one's gonna watch that fight. I mean, that fight sucks. So I don't think it's gonna happen. Defend the belt against Bobby Knuckles. That's the only fight to make. Unify the belts, and then and then that'll be it. I don't know if this is true. Gail Sonnen was on ESPN and says GSP is signed to a two-fight deal with penalties. And apparently that means he'd be locked up to fight. He fought this fight, and then he would fight the, the Whitaker fight next. But we'll see. Conor McGregor might want this fight, too. No idea. And my money's still on Tyron. Yeah, I got such a laugh. Uh, this is serious. Because uh, Tyron Woodley was on the analyst desk for this fight. After the event, he said, no, you know what? Screw it. I want to go up to middleweight and fight for the belt. And I, I laughed at Shut that. Shut up, not because, Tyron Woodley. Shut up. I laughed at that not because, you know, it's out of character for either Tyron Woodley or incongruous for the current time and place in which MMA is conducted. I laughed at that because... Like, both Karen Bryant and Chris Weidman pointed out that, you know, there is Robert Whitaker who was, like, sitting cage-side for this, who is the – I mean, if if Michael Bisbing holds on to the middleweight belt and fights anyone other than Robert Whitaker, I, at that point, that belt means nothing. Like, that means less than – I mean, at that point, it will be the celebrity belt. It will mean less than the interim belt that Robert Whitaker holds. Robert Whitaker is the guy, he's the one who's gone through the gauntlet. He's the one who's fought the murderer's row of contenders. For all intents and purposes, he's, he may not be the undisputed champion, but I would say he's the rightful UFC middleweight champion. Well, he, he, he's, either, he's either directly beaten or beaten by proxy all the rest of the guys in the top five. Right. So that's that's the fight to happen, and maybe it doesn't happen in Australia, but it should. It should happen. You know, whatever GSP wants to do. I mean, I want to give GSP credit because you know he didn't look like prime GSP last night, but he didn't look like a wreck. You know, he was. No, he looked much he looked, better than the average fighter coming off of a you know half as long a layoff as right. he had. Right, exactly. So I, I want to give, I want to, you know, no matter what, I want to give GSP credit for that because he did. I think he did, for all intents and purposes, look good. Maybe he didn't look fantastic, but he looked good, and he didn't look like a guy coming off a four-year layoff. And then, you know, you, I mean, you never know like how a guy's gonna look in a situation like that. I mean, no, I mean, I mean, a guy like Dominic Cruz who came back and fought the way he did. I think I would say he surpassed all of our expectations. Usually. Um, and then you hear, you know, you hear those things about his trainers, about them not liking how GSP looks in training. Da, da, da. And you don't want to see, like, an older veteran who you, you know, who's really a legend in this sport. You don't want to see him come back and just look like a, look like a wreck. Which, look, GSP, looked, he looked good. But he was, fighting, he was fighting an older guy who has a lot of miles under him. He's not fighting a young – Whitaker's a stud, man. And he's still 26 years old, and he's going to be fresh. He's already back. He's already back to training full time. Um, he already probably could have taken a fight 
uh, but he's waiting for this fight with GSP. And he's waiting for the Perth card. I think is what he's waiting for. No, no. He, I mean, he, he, that that time frame might be too early for GSP. So he. No, I know, he but I, you, I believe they have attached Whitaker to the he's not, uh, pay-per-view no, it's event. Not, it's not done. It's not a done deal. It's not a done deal for Perth. He said he would he would wait for the GSP fight even if it was in Vegas or Montreal or wherever. So it's not a done deal that fight happens in Perth. Oh, good for him. Uh, um, my point I, I I don't see GSP getting past him at all. But no. I hope we see that fight. But you know what? Yeah, maybe, I, I also too. You know what? Maybe he does. Maybe maybe you know we can't. He he's still GSP at the end of the day. And maybe last night means we still shouldn't underestimate him. So, who knows? Uh, that's very true. Um, Pat, I want you to kind of have the final word here because we haven't lost in, you know, kind of our discussions here is something I want to try and contextualize. George St. Pierre just came back from a four-year hiatus during which time he had major knee surgery because he tore one of his ACLs during his time off and had to have it repaired. He was abducted by aliens. And we all know that that could drive you to becoming a drunk crop duster. Some people just never recover from that. Four years after he had not, because he didn't look especially great in the Johnny Hendricks fight, up a weight class, and not just a marginal weight class, you know, in boxing going up and down weight classes is a matter of, you know, four pounds. Here it was, you know, 15 pounds. And he just became the only the fourth person in UFC history to hold titles in two different weight classes. Can you try and contextualize this for me? Because I mean, I can say all those things, but do you have a parallel from your you know deep knowledge of combat sports history that you'd like to draw here? I mean, this is one comparable to. There's a lot of great comeback stories where somebody takes a, an extended period off, comes back and they see new faces in a new division, and they decide, eh, you know what, I can do this, comes back, and wins the belt right off the bat. Um, it, the, the most recent one I could think of, and it's not a jump in weight class, but it's definitely a jump, uh, Vitaly Klitschko a couple years back took a layoff of close to three years as heavyweight champion, and during that time he had had major reconstructive shoulder surgery, and – he was looked at when he left as the absolute best heavyweight in the world, other than potentially his brother. So he came back without a tune-up fight, fought a guy that nobody really wanted to fight, and Samuel Peter, who was this, you know, African knockout artist who was laying guys out, and not just knocking them out where it was – knocking guys unconscious. He came back and beat him without losing a minute of that fight pretty relentlessly and stopped him. And it looked as though he'd never left. That's the most recent thing I can think of when it comes to these type of comebacks where a guy comes back and maybe there's, they're not looking exactly like they did prior to, but there is a lot about them that looks refreshed. They look hungry. They look motivated and they make a big splash by putting a stamp on their comeback with a finish. And that's what you saw here. Um, George is a tremendous athlete. George is a gamer. And a lot of times when you're in a situation like his, where he was on top and beating guy after guy, 
wasn't challenged often, had moments in fights where he was challenged, like when Carlos Condit hurt him a little bit, but he rebounded and took control of the fight right back. The Hendricks fight maybe made him question himself a little bit and decide, I need to take some time off because I've been doing this full blast for a long time at the highest level. I need to get me some mental help and some relaxation and come back better if I want to come back. And he did. Good for him. It's an incredible moment. It's one of those things that you'll see in so many Hall of Fame highlight packages. And this will be one of those moments that gets talked about for a long, long time. And it should be. All right. Both of you, just real quick, uh, basically yes or no with maybe a brief explanation. With this, did George take your – in your, just your opinion personally, after this, does George's, did George's accomplishments – Put him at the top of your best ever list, Patton and Jeff. No, I think he's absolutely top five. I can't put him at one. I think there's very much still conversation about Anderson Silva, Federer Emilianenko, Frank Shamrock, and it remains to be seen whatever will happen with John Jones. All right, Jeff? No. Uh, he's in the conversation. I think it will take some time before I think we can come to um, more of a – what's the word I'm looking for? Consensus. Um, consensus, yes. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> you have such a way with words. Uh, I think it's going to take a while, and, and here's the other thing. He's not the undisputed champion. These t- this fair. title is disputed. And once again, Robert Whitaker is the young stud – Who's, who who was beating the guys that really Michael Bisping should have been fighting to solidify his title reign. They've been fought and beaten by Robert Whitaker, who is the interim champion. Now, yeah, like we, say, like, like, like we established, he's the lineal champion, but he's not the best right. middleweight. Correct. So he, it's not like he, he came back and fought someone like Robert Whitaker arguably who I would say arguably is the best middleweight in the UFC. He came and fought Michael Bisbing, who it, yes, who is the champion, but Bisbing had, this was Bisbing's first, Bisbing had a long layoff too. This was his, his first fight in a while. He wasn't fighting. About a year, Yoel yeah. Romero. He wasn't fighting the Yoel Romero's, the Jacare's, um, the Robert Whitaker's. He wasn't fighting those guys after he, after he fought and beat Luke Rockhold, which Yes, I think was a fantastic win, but he all he was doing was playing for these these uh, these super fights, and I mean I mean his first title defense was a guy ranked outside of the top ten, uh, who was and barely his in the top, top fifteen th- ranking was somewhat charitable. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think you I think he's yes definitely in the top five, maybe even the top three. But I think okay. I think we'll, we'll we'll need a little time. I want to see how the I want to see how things pan out first, and I want to see if he fights uh, Robert Whitaker. And uh, hey, if he beats Whitaker, I think we can definitely revisit this conversation. But that's my that's my uh, thought. Flat no. Other than that, flat uh, no. That's fair. Uh, yeah, just uh, okay. That's I don't think I have anything else to add to that. Moving on. This fight, okay, let me be clear about something. Officially, I, I picked Cody one. Garbrandt to win. Hang on, hang on. Officially, no, no, I, I picked Dillashaw. <laughs> no, no, this is Dillashaw. the this is. I, no, no, let Dillashaw me let me say this. Back. 
Yes, TJ Dillashaw defeats Cody Garbrandt via knockout in the second round. I, I love this division. <laughs> this is the best division in the world. But Pat, you're gonna have to you have to confirm that I said this. Because, again, last week when we talked about it at the round table, every way I've said this was a close fight, but I was picking Cody Garbrandt. As they were walking out, this is not a joke. Again, Pat can confirm this. After everything that had happened on that night going into this fight, I said, and I believe this is verbatim, the way this night is going, TJ finishes Cody inside of two rounds. You did say that word for word. I don't know why... I got that right before they got in the cage, and I don't know why I was wrong every other time leading up to this, but uh, just again, for the record, like I don't know why I had a bit of clairvoyance there, but for some reason I did. Uh, this was, a, while I expected a different outcome, this was about, again, like outside of just randomly at the last minute realizing, no, no, TJ's got this in, you know, before 10 minutes is up. I love – this is about as good as a, what, eight-minute fight or so can be. Yeah. The, the first round of this fight, I don't know what happened between rounds, but something, because I don't think I've seen two different like, rounds that changed that drastically for reasons I can't pinpoint. The first round, T.J. Dillashaw had basically nothing to offer Cody Garbrandt. He was doing everything he normally does. I don't mean to say that he was, you know, wildly outclassed. But everything he was... I wouldn't say he didn't have anything in the first round. But everything he was doing wasn't working. And not just, like, not working in the general sense, but, like, clearly not working. Like, okay, I'm, you know, shifting stances and, you know, throwing feints. And Cody Garbrandt, one of his, like, one of his true gifts as a fighter is that he does not flinch. He doesn't bite on feints. He, it's the primary reason I believe he beat Dominic Cruz. Every time Dominic Cruz would, you know, fake or faint or try to get a read on him, he just wouldn't bite until Cruz had to commit to something, at which point he was able to outpunch him and, you know, had a good enough read on what Cruz did. The first round, there was a lot of that. TJ trying to get him to bite on a fake, bite on a look, overcommit to something, and Cody just very, very patiently, very obviously just, nope, I know you're not doing anything of, that is da- endangering me in any way. I'm going to wait until you're on my terms, and then I'm going to blast you. And that's basically what happened. At the very end of the first round, he cracked TJ with a right hook, and if that punch happens 30 seconds earlier or if there's, you know, 30 seconds more in that round, if this is a 10-minute round instead of a 5-minute round, I think Cody stops him. But timing matters and the round structure matters. TJ didn't get finished, came out in the second round, and what TJ did in the second round that was so different from what he did in the first was he stopped fainting the same way he had always fainted. And it, I don't know if that threw Cody off. I don't know if I, – you know, I, do, I really don't know what happened to Cody Garbrandt between rounds one and two because the second round was a complete reversal from the first. TJ stopped being as active in terms of his movement and in terms of his you know, faking and fainting 
but he started setting up with much more subtle stuff from the outside in terms of his foot position, in terms of his hand position. And that seemed to really kind of flummox Cody because TJ connected with a very naked head kick that is the type of thing that really shouldn't ever land. But because of the way he had adjusted his setups, Cody never really saw it coming, and he never recovered from that head kick. He got back up, but when he got up, he stopped fighting defense first. And there's a very clear division in how Cody Garbrandt fights. When he fights with his offense first, look at his run up to the title fight. Because a lot of suboptimal strikers, in some cases outright bad strikers, consistently landed on him. And it just didn't matter because he was able to eat them and overwhelm them. Because, again, like I eat a small left hook in exchange for getting you into an exchange that I know I am better than. And that works on guys who don't really know how to strike. When he fights with his defense first, he makes superb strikers like Dominic Cruz and TJ Dillashaw in the first round look like they are levels below him in terms of skill. He started going offense first after getting head kicked. And credit to TJ for you know setting up that circumstance because a lot of guys haven't been able to. He got into an exchange of hooks and ate a right hook to the jaw, and that was all she wrote. Th- again, this was a, about as good a eight-minute fight as you could ever possibly ask for. The way these two adjusted to each other, uh, I, I have absolutely no uh, – sorry – Wrong wrong start to the sentence there. I loved this fight, even though it was short, even though I was technically wrong. I can't wait for them to do it again. I really want these guys to fight like five times over the course of their career because it would be so – it's just so fascinating. Because I'm sure they're very evenly matched. I don't know if either of you noticed this, but there were times in the first round where it looked like Dillashaw was moving in slow motion almost and like constantly moving his body around looking for some sort of weird angle or I don't know what he was if he was if trying you, to if take, you're kind of taking almost like the monkey yeah. stance he kind of took is that yeah. what you're pointing to Jeff I don't know it, it looked like he was he was shifting his body around in weird poses multiple what, times and, and I mean are you like talking was, like uh, I'll give you an example where he had his left hand basically almost on the ground, his right hand in the air and extended towards Cody, and his body hunched over to the left. Yeah, he was. Le- I don't know. Some, when, some when you're taking a lot of that. Yeah, when you're taking position like that, it's because he wants to have his weight shifted in order to follow with a kick because of the shift in the weight, where he can bring his leg over, which obviously was something he used effectively later on. Or it's because he's fighting a guy who he wants to grab a low single leg on on the near leg if it comes close to him and be in position for it. That extended hand is a distraction for the opponent, but it's also a way for him to gauge distance on the side of their body. It's a very unorthodox technique that he's able to use effectively because he tends to hold himself upright very well, has good balance and good dexterity. Uh, it's a technique a lot of guys aren't able to pull off. Here's 
what else? I, I, I said last week that Cody's a very emotional guy. Um, he got into a firefight here. Um, and I think Dillashaw, I think, he, I think he never got the respect he deserved when he was champion. And I don't think he got the respect he deserved against that fight with Dominic Cruz. I think that fight with Dominic Cruz was closer than Dominic Cruz fans are willing to give it credit for. And I think that fight easily could have been a draw. And I think, I think he's, Dillashaw's really good at adjusting his style to his opponents. And... I mean, Garbrandt, may, he, he probably has a lot more just pure one-punch knockout power than Dillashaw, but um, he also left a lot of openings for Dillashaw to exploit. And, you know, I, I can understand this, this loss is probably still fresh, but I don't really think you can call yourself unequivocally the better fighter after you just got knocked out, Cody Garbrandt, you're not the best fighter. Not right now. Uh, Jeff, I'm oh, sorry, Pat, your thoughts on the fight? Because you know, I know you love this about as much as I did. Yeah, this was this was an awesome fight. Uh, almost a kind of a tale of two fights in one because of the differences in the two rounds that we saw or a round and, you know, pseudo round in terms of the second take place. Um in the first round, it almost looked like a continuation of Cruz uh, Garbrandt versus Cruz because he was doing the same things to TJ that he was doing to Dominic. Again, not biting on the feints. When they weren't close, he utilized very good head and upper body movement to make Dillashaw miss with all his strikes and was able to time his own strikes effectively, hurt him and nearly finished him at the end of the round. In the second round, I don't know what it is, I'm going to give credit to TJ for this, that he had a good poker face on that confused Cody, where Cody thought TJ may have been less hurt than he actually may have been. And as a result, he didn't try to step on the gas and go right for the kill at the beginning of the round. What that allowed TJ to do was get back into it, measure Cody, and when he finally got that head kick in on him, because they were in kicking range as opposed to straight boxing range, it made a big difference in what they were able to do. Because Cody didn't see it. Uh, yeah, Cody didn't see it. He was a little shook up by it. And what TJ was able to do at that point was effectively measure. And when he did get into a firefight with Cody, he kept himself low so that he wasn't going to be upright when the punches potentially hit him. He was going to take them more on the top of the head unless Cody decided to mix it up and go down. What that allowed him to do was come up with that punch that caught Cody right on the point of the chin, and he finished with great positioning. This was a tremendous fight with a lot of great technique back and forth. I love Bantamweight. I love that we got this. I love that on the horizon we have TJ versus the winner of Dominic Cruz and Jimmy Rivera. I love that on the horizon we have the other guy from that fight potentially fighting Cody. I love that we have Marlon Marais in the mix. I love 135. Yeah, bantamweight is the – I think it's the – if you love technique in MMA, bantamweight is kind of the perfect division to that, that is, speaks this, to you. This is the deepest division in terms of the top five guys being – 
the best five guys in a division because the top five guys in this division are easily better than any other division's top five right now and any other division's top five that we've ever seen to this point. It, it took some time, Pat, but I'm glad you've come around on Bantamweight. Uh, Robin show. Black actually said something really interesting about. Uh, Look at the other top about, five, for God's sake. So you got <laughs> John Lineker. Look who's there. Yeah, it, it's an exceptional Jimmy Rivera, division. It's, Jimmy Rivera is about to fight Dominic Cruz. I can't wait to see that fight. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the last thing I wanted to say here before I bring up something that kind of got thrown around by a lot of parties after this fight. When asked to preview this fight, Robin Black said that said something really interesting about both Cody and TJ, and kind of by extension, you know, Cruz and I suppose Rivera as well, but I'm waiting on Rivera's fight with Cruz before I really enter him into the discussion that I'm about to hear. There's always guys who innovate in sport, and it's and it's weird because it's so hard to really appreciate at the time especially the, the process of innovation. You know, uh, somebody in basketball at one point figured out, decided that, you know, if we have our guys defend zones rather than individual players, how does that change things? You know, how does the forward pass in football change things? How does the wishbone relate to the eye formation, relate to, you know, nickel packages, how does bunting and sacrificing work, you know, stealing bases in certain scenarios? There's always innovation that has taken place, and it's rare that you see it in real time. And there's a few fighters in MMA right now, fighter and coach tandems, that are really on the cutting edge of what MMA can be, what it really looks like when you get everything. You have Dillashaw and Dwayne Ludwig. You have Cody and whoever the head coach is at Team Alpha Male, because apparently their coaching situation is kind of a mess. Uh, you have Dominic Cruz and Eric Del Fiero. You have Demetrius Johnson and Matt Hume. You have these guys who are really pushing the envelope in terms of what the sport looks like when it's really, really good. And Bantamweight is very fortunate to have Again, three, possibly four guys that are in the same division, all experimenting and all working on that very, very cutting edge. And it's, it's really great to watch. The thing I want to bring up is T.J. Dillashaw, after this win, called out Demetrius Johnson. Uh. Wants to cut to flyweight, and he wants to fight Mighty Mouse for the flyweight belt. What if Mighty Mouse first... goes up to Bantamweight? Or they meet at 130. Mighty Mouse has been very clear. If you want him to move up while he's champion, it's going to cost the UFC a lot of money. And much as I love DJ, he's not worth that much money. That's just the reality of it. I also don't want to see the title tied up in terms of having to sit through that fight you know, when there's so much else going on at Bantamweight. It's not like that's a division where it's so devoid of talent or the champ has cleaned it out. This is a division where the likelihood is we're going to see that title, like you said, Rob, playing hot potato between these talented guys at at certain points. I don't think there's any one guy there that's so head and shoulders above the rest 
that they're not going to drop the belt to somebody else. You know, we could see Dillashaw drop the belt in his next fight to Jimmy Rivera, who could drop the belt to to Cody, who could drop the belt to Cruz, who could drop the belt to Marais, who could, you know, all these all this potentials out there. I think the best case scenario is do this fight at a catch weight 130. Neither guy's belt is on the line. It's just a freaky super fight you could throw on a card if you have to do it at all. Yeah, I said when they first mentioned, because, you know, there was the whole thing about TJ wants to come down after Cody Garbrandt had his back injury, and there was that whole thing that kind of developed that I said it then, I'll say it now. If that fight happens in a vacuum, I love it. I love what, I love the possibility of it. I love the way they match up. I heavily favor TJ Dillashaw in that fight. And I love, I am... Uh, you know, the biggest fan of Demetrius Johnson there might be, but I favor TJ in that fight for a variety of reasons. But nothing happens in a vacuum. It, it, nothing. And you've got a number one contender's bout between a former champion, a guy who beat TJ Dillashaw. You've got a guy on the up and, uh, you know, up and coming in Jimmy Rivera who hasn't lost in years. You, you've got a very talented division. I don't like tying it up there. And I really don't like what things look like going forward for anybody after that fight. I mean, let's assume for a moment that TJ comes down to 125, is able to make weight, and wins the fight. They're all assumptions, but they're all reasonable assumptions, I feel. What is his first act of business after, you know, he wins the title – He's got two belts. He's on top of the world. Joe Rogan sticks the mic in his face, and his response is, boy, that weight cut sucked. I am never fighting at flyweight again. What do we do? Like, what does the UFC do? You could dissolve the flyweight division. (laughs) Which is, you joke. Hang on. You guys joke. You joke about it, but let's imagine that happens. Do you think they wouldn't? I mean, flyweight's not a, re- a no, I, significant I, I return on investment. I, I, I say that, but I think it, it, it's a serious outcome if that fight happens, Robert. If that, yeah, sir, if that set of circumstances happens, yeah, I think they just scrap the division. Everyone at flyweight look, cut 10 look, less pounds. But look, the me- yeah. let's, let's not deny the media doesn't feed into these conversations and these matchups. They do. Whenever you have a dominant champion, the media gets um, – anxious about who the next fight is going to be and that, you know, the guys he's fighting in his current weight class aren't a big enough matchup, so they should basically seek out super fight matchups to get a better challenge. And let me be clear about something else. If the situation is slightly reversed, I mean, if Mighty Mouse goes up to 135 and challenges for the belt, I'm more okay with that then I am the reverse situation. I would agree. I have, I have significantly more faith in Demetrius either sticking around to defend the belt of bantamweight, should he win. And let's be on, on the other side, let's be fair, he's cleaned out flyweight. Right, he's cleaned out flyweight. And look, and look Demetrius Johnson, when he was at flyweight, he was a top, he was when he dropped. He was still arguably one of the top five flyweight, uh, excuse me, bantamweights in the world. Still a top yeah. bantamweight when he moved down. So 
and, and the the fact is the challenges aren't there for him at flyweight. So why do you book a fight with Dillashaw to give him a more challenging matchup? And that's a tougher matchup for him moving up to fight at uh, bantamweight than than, Dilla, than it is for Dillashaw to move down. And then, yeah, he'd be he if he were to win, he'd have to probably vacate the flyweight title. But you know that at least opens up that at least at least okay, you're opening up the flyweight division for a vacant title fight. You'll have a new flyweight champion if 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 Johnson were to win and go from there. I think that's the best case scenario for everyone. If, if, they, I, if, they if, you were, if you were to make that fight at all, that I was going to say if, if they if, if they do it at the specific weight limit where a belt is on the line, I still think if they're going to really go on this, the best thing to do is just do it at 130 pounds. Make them meet each other halfway. Don't put either belt on the on the line so the divisions aren't on hold that long. Um, and then you can make a decision from that point on. If Demetrius wins, then you've got a title fight at bantamweight ready to go. If, you know, TJ wins at 130, then Demetrius can either go back down to flyweight where he's lost some steam and looks vulnerable and maybe you can sell a fight, or he moves up at that point because he's got something to prove. I think I, I just think this is a scenario where if you're going to do the super fight between champions, do it at 130 where everybody comes out where they're still valuable. And the divisions yeah. don't suffer. All right, uh, we jeez. Moving on. Can we can we rip on? Us. Can we rip on Daniel Cormier real quick? If you feel so inclined. Yeah. So we've all joked about Daniel Cormier not being the best color commentator in the world. Uh, last night, I really believe that he is suffering from the early onset of pugilistic dementia, which is of course being punchy. Um, he made a lot of comments last night that were just off the wall and stupid. And I'm willing to hear that out to a point because I understand there's certain things going on during, for example, the Bantamweight title fight. Okay. At one point, the crowd was chanting F U T J. Now the reason they're chanting that is because there's been a narrative painted where TJ has been called out for how he left Team Alpha Male by his teammates, very publicly by Conor McGregor during the Ultimate Fighter, and that whole narrative that went on. And that's what built a lot of the build-up to the fight with Cody. So there's a very clear narrative where it's been painted who's the good guy and who's the bad guy in this scenario, largely to the public for consumption. So when a crowd that's known for cheering on people who showed loyalty to their sports teams even when they left versus booing unmercifully at anybody who's had anything negative to say or do towards their teams, you would expect that reaction if you had any common sense. Daniel Cormier's response of, I don't know why they're chanting this at Dillashaw, he's a nice guy, just struck me as one of the ultimate moments of stupidity from him that we've heard in a while, and we hear a lot of them whenever he's on commentary. I want him to be put in a box and shipped away for a while. I don't know if it's because Dominic Cruz wasn't available for commentary. I feel like he would have been much more valuable, for, especially for the Cody versus TJ fight with his insights having fought both guys. I guess maybe he wasn't willing to break camp for a one-off shot to do this. But Daniel Cormier is legitimately horrible, and they need to find a replacement quick. All right. 
moving well, on to the next I mean, slide. I mean, I mean, Daniel Cormier is looking at it from another perspective than you or me, Pat. And what I would say to that, look, he doesn't like – like, he, he took it personally when he was getting booed when he was fighting John Jones. And he was like, why are you booing me? This is the guy who's, who's getting DUIs, he's failing drug tests and all that, and you're booing me. And I think he's just I think the I think he's just a little sensitive. I'm not saying I, I I'm not I'm not disagreeing. Maybe he could be better on commentary and maybe he should be replaced with a guy like Cruz who I think is a hell of a lot better. But I think he's ju- I, I think he's just looking at it from, from that perspective. Yeah, I'd agree. I had a much more negative reaction to his commentary for the next title for the next fight than I did for the oh, Bantamweight title that was fight. Stupid too. Uh, all right, next up, your – again, no champion retained their belt on this card. I think everyone – I mean, GSP was actually favored, which was a little bit odd, but so be it. TJ and Cody, Cody was favored, but I think everyone with a brain knew how close that fight was. So TJ winning is not a surprise. Rose Namajunas knocked out Ioana Jacek at three minutes of the first round. This was your big shocking, you know, what, what world have we stepped into moment. And it's not, it, part of it is just that Rose won at all. More significantly, it's how she won. A lot of people mentioned that, you know, because, you know, the, in an effort to draw comparisons, well, this is like Holly Holm knocking out Ronda Rousey. No. This would be more akin to Holly Holm arm-barring Ronda Rousey. Yeah. Like, it's not, because, again, there were people, smart people, mind you, picking Holly to win that fight, and if she was going to win, it was going to be in the manner that she did win. It was going to be clinch-breaking. It was going to be striking because those are Ronda's weaknesses, not her strengths. People picking Rose, and I know there were some out there, it was going to be on the mat. It was going to be her forcing a scramble, a prolonged you know, battle in that position where she can get positional dominance, where she can this was the first. This was the first knockout win of her career. Yeah, so let's, like yeah, this was that. this was so outside the realm of what we thought possible. Like it's slightly more akin to Matt Sarah knocking out GSP in terms of you know if Matt Sarah's going to win, how's he going to win? Well, he's a phenomenal jujitsu player. He's going to get George down. He's going to sweep him into a dominant position. He's going to tap him because again, Matt Sarah's jujitsu is otherworldly. If you've never seen Matt Sarah just compete in jiu-jitsu tournaments, you have done yourself a disservice. And GSP was the knockout artist at that point in time. This was, again, that's what this was like. This was so far outside what you expected to happen that it's, you struggle to properly quantify it. Uh, Rose okay. dropped Joanna with a right relatively early. Joanna got back up but never really got back in the fight. A left hook, not too much longer, and she is out. This was shockingly bad stuff from Ioana. I, I do want to start there. This was I don't, shockingly I don't think she bad. I used her range or distance usually well, but 
we have seen her get cracked in the first. We have seen her get touched in the first round before. She tends to start out very slow. And, no, um, but I think I know I where Robert's going like, with this. But I also think I think she fought way too. I mean, do we usually see her fight that close, that inside? It's she's gotten you know, into she's gotten into exchanges. But there is a big element missing, and I, I want to let Robert go ahead because I do think he's going to touch on it. If he doesn't, I will. Yeah, what really shocked me about this, first of all, was her distance management, which she's normally quite good at. I was shocked by her lack of reaction time because – and some of this needs – some of the credit here needs to go to Rose. I don't want to do this whole thing bagging on Joanna because that does Rose a disservice – but Joanna seemed utterly unprepared for the distance closing of Rose. And Joanna's complete and utter lack of head movement, of upper body movement. Bingo. She, can be she can be hit. She's been hit in the past. I mean, Karolina Kovalkiewicz dropped her. Uh, Jessica Andraz, I think, landed a punch over the course of their 25-minute fight. It's not that she's unhittable, you know, she, that, that's not her reputation, but it's hard to consistently hit her, and none of that was present. There was no upper body movement. There was no head movement. There was no reaction to Rose closing distance. But, but, but we know you want to have those things. She, she I know. Has... That's why it was so shockingly bad from her. I almost wonder if, like, it was so far outside of the norm and what we know of her to be true that I almost wonder if there was something that had happened in training camp or in her personal life that just completely flummoxed her because she looked she, had a she looked awful. This wasn't a cl- this wasn't even a fight. If you look just- if you look at the knockout, okay? If you look at the thirty seconds that happened before it. Rose basically measures for that same left hook. Rose looks at what Joanna is doing and, and looking at where she's moving. She makes that same motion with her body and lunges a little bit with the left, but doesn't throw it with authority. She just does it to see what Joanna is going to do. And Joanna doesn't move her head when she does it. She just kind of stands there. So what Rose did towards the end was she fainted that right hand Got you wanted to move a little bit to the left, and Rose just hauled off with everything she had on that left hook and turned her lights out. I mean, the finish was pretty academic at that point, but Rose saw what was going on that Joanna wasn't moving her head. Joanna's entire defense was basically based on her legs and how far she could get away from Rose, and she didn't do that a whole lot. It's one thing to get caught when you throw a kick, which is what happened to Joanna the first time. And I don't think she was necessarily hurt by that so much as she got caught, she got tagged. We've seen her tagged before. Cole Kavich hit her. Claudia Goodell had dropped her in the first round of their rematch. It's normal, but she made no adjustment at that point, and there was no head and upper body movement present prior to that or after that. So, again, if you look at the 30 seconds that happened before the knockout, Rose basically sets up what she's looking for. She faints a little bit lunges with the left, but doesn't throw with the authority. She just wants to see what Joanna's reaction is going to be. And when Joanna doesn't do anything to intelligently defend it, Rose says, screw it. I'm going to haul off and throw it with everything I got. And she turned her lights out. 
Um, did did Yoana not properly game plan for Rose Namajunas? I I don't like. I don't know if it Certainly was game planning. that way. I mean, I mean, you know, clearly whatever she did didn't work. I mean, it's just that it's, I got to be honest. Watching the lead up to this fight, if I were to tell you who was winning the mental game between these two, I would say it was Joanna. I saw like a scrum a couple of days before the fight with Rose, and it looked like that, like. Like, she wanted to be anywhere else but that place. It looked like she was literally about to break into tears. And I'm like, all I was thinking is, I hope Rose is going to be okay after Saturday night. And, and, you know, I I really want to credit Rose because, I mean, she really did a good job in this fight. But, I don't know, it's just weird to me because... Going into this fight, I was like, "Man, I'm really wor- worried about Rose because it, it just—it looks like it looked like she was barely able to, you know, taper things down and, and hold it together." And you know, you don't get that from Yuana at all. But um, I guess it just didn't matter here. No, I, again, like this was just so far outside of what we knew to be true before the fight happened that. You know, we're all kind of struggling for an appropriate explanation for it, and I mean, maybe we'll, ne- you know, we might never actually get one. But you know, Rose, a lot of credit to her. She found an opening. She capitalized on it. She is now the champion, and we are. Uh, I'm not sure what happens next. Um, it's Styles, Robert. It's Styles. Jessica Jessica Andrade is licking her chops. Is what happens next. And That's the, very the, true. The smallest mistakes. The smallest mistakes in this in this game. Just the slightest yeah, of errors. It is. Um, I know Joanna was kind of angling for a rematch. I don't know that you can sell that. <laughs> I mean, this wasn't even competitive. <laughs> like. If they got into a firefight and there was some back and forth and then, you know, Rose just happened to clip her, then maybe. But I don't think you want to land at a significant blow that whole fight. It, again, this was not close. <laughs> just, again, Jessica Andrade, if we're going on merit, it would probably be Andrade. She is – there's elements of that matchup, the stylistic matchup for Rose and Jessica that favor Jessica heavily. There's a few that favor Rose. Rose is really good at catching people as they try to close distance, and that's basically speed. what Jessica does. Speed, but Jessica speed, speed. pushes an obscene pace and works the body a lot, and Rose has been a little soft to the body in t- at times. So if you look at if you look at who Rose has fought, okay, and, and we'll take it from uh, when she first broke into the UFC when Carla Esparza beat her, which like nobody would bet on that result happening now. You know, she's lost one fight, and that's the Kovalkiewicz, and that was an arguable fight that she could have won on the cards. Otherwise, she's knocked out Joanna. She choked out Michelle Waterston. She choked out Paige. She choked out Angela Hill, and she beat uh, Tisha Torres, who she she's lost to and evicted prior to. Okay, so she hasn't really lost, lost definitively since she lost to Carla as far as in that title fight. And the one loss is questionable, and she's beaten everybody else they put in front of her. 
I think Andrade is the logical choice at this point, but this division's wide open again with fun possibilities. I think part of the reason you might do an immediate rematch is because everyone that you would give Joanna as a rebound fight. She's already beaten. She's already beaten them. Like, they're all rematches. I mean, outside well, of maybe someone still, like Tisha Torres. She could, if the weight cut is tough for her, she could still move up. She yeah. could. And maybe, I think she's she, mentioned, like she mentioned at the post-fight presser, that had she won, she was going to move up. And now she wants yeah, her belt may, back, which is maybe fine. She doesn't, maybe she doesn't immediately fight the winner for a title fight, but she could still move up if she wanted. And that could be interesting, I think. But Yeah, her at flyweight's yeah. a very interesting possibility. Here's what I here's here's what else I think. She suffered the Ronda Rousey curse of declaring I'm going to retire undefeated. Yeah, never say that. <laughs> like fighters just never say that. It never happens. Unless you're Floyd Mayweather. It just never happens. Yeah, the ones who retire undefeated are the ones who don't say I'm going to retire undefeated. No, like uh, it's one thing to say you believe you're the best in the world and that nobody can beat you. It's another thing to say I am so good that over a period of, you know, eight to ten years fighting, no one's ever going to catch me on an off night. Here's the other thing, to, especially MMA fighters, your career will never be as well managed as Floyd Mayweather's. Not only was Floyd a, a superbly gifted and hardworking and talented boxer, he managed his career exceptionally well. And managed taking the more dangerous, uh, avoid taking the more dangerous matchups. Let's be honest. Stop there. that you have no idea what you're talking about. Hang on, hang on. I, I don't believe Floyd ever ducked anyone. I think there's a significant difference between ducking someone and timing he a fight Pacquiao properly. He ducked Pacquiao, and he didn't fight that fight when he should have. Because Manny wouldn't get off steroids. This is a circular logic discussion that's going to go nowhere. Now, he waited to fight for the Pacquiao fight until it, at, until it was at his greatest advantage. That's what I mean by best by managing his career exceptionally well. I, again, I don't think he ever ducked anyone. I also think he made sure that when he fought them, it was to his maximal advantage. I mean, he, fought, he was the first guy to beat Canelo when Canelo was a monster and still is kind of a monster, the Golovkin nonsense notwithstanding, because he knew that Canelo had never fought anyone like him with that experience, with that defense. And he fought him when it was at his to his best advantage business-wise and to his best advantage competition-wise. No MMA fighter is ever going to manage their career with the, well, I won't say ever. In the, in the very immediate future, say the next five years, no MMA fighter, no MMA manager is in a position to do from a logistical standpoint what Floyd did and have the fighting ability to necessarily capitalize on all of them. It, no, and I mean, realistically, in MMA, that up. in MMA, you know, who have we had that we could say at any point in time was a really good manager of, of their talent? The only guy really, and it's shocking in retrospect, is Ed Soares. Do you have it? Yeah. 
I mean, you don't have a lot. You don't have a lot of MMA managers. Certainly not the same way you do with boxing. But anyway, the, okay. So moving on. Just yeah, guys, don't don't ever say you're going to retire undefeated. Just don't do it. Even before your last fight, if you know, like this is my last fight. I haven't lost prior to this point. Uh, and I'm going to. Re- and if I win, I'm going to retire undefeated. Sure, thank it. Just don't say it. Never tempt the irony gods like that. Never, because they will smite you. Uh, all right. Next up, Stephen Thompson defeated Jorge Masvidal via unanimous decision. Two thirty twenty sevens, one thirty twenty six. I yeah. have no earthly idea which round could have been ten eight. I just don't. Um. You know, I was wrong a lot about this card. This one I was right, so yay me. This fight played out kind of how I thought it would. Masvidal is a very good fighter, but over three rounds, I'm not sure, just based on styles, who beat Stephen Thompson just in a three-round fight. I mean, at this point, you know, again, he lost to Matt Brown earlier in his career. Masvidal had some good moments. You know, uh, the third round was a... He had a very good round. He just, I thought Stephen Thompson had a better one. Masvidal really struggled to cut off the cage. Uh, He struggled to really consistently get into punching range. And when he would try to, and this was very odd, because Jorge is actually usually really good about how he sets up his offense, he would have to close the last bit in a straight line, and Thompson was able to just angle off and then counter him. Uh, this was basically what Stephen Thompson does as a fighter. He's very good at punishing you when you're coming forward and at annoying you when you're going backward. Um, he doesn't get as many finishes as Lyoto Machida because Machida would put a lot more oomph onto his blows. But Thompson's also a lot more diligent about clearly scoring in a fight, whereas Machida would frequently... Except when a title is on the line. Except when he fights Tyron Woodley. Let me. I will say that. There's just something about the way the those two match up line. that is so awful. That is just so awful. Um, Pat, I know you weren't a fan of this fight, so I'll give you a little bit to vent. Uh, I'll start with you here. No, and you, you kind of mentioned the difference between uh, uh, you know, what we saw Steven Thompson do and Machida do. Steven Thompson manages distance really well. He uses that angular stance where he's basically sideways towards his opponent. And he does a lot of unorthodox kicking technique to establish distance. The issue with Thompson is that whereas Machida would eventually lull you in and go for the kill, Thompson has no earthly desire to do that. He throws punches that don't have any weight to them. He throws kicks that don't really hit hard. Of the two, when they were kicking last night, I think Masvidal was landing the harder, more effective kicks when he would kick at Thompson's legs, which is a technique I think he abandoned too early. Um, But, you know, he flurries and punches with arm punches. When he knocks Masvidal down with that right hand, he basically leapt into it with his full body weight and hit Masvidal, who was standing very straight up throughout the fight. So he hit a guy who was off balance with his best shot, didn't hurt him, just knocked him over from the force and positioning. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to do these little, what you would call in the old school fight days, cutie techniques. 
and that's what he's about. And it's going to serve him well in these three-round fights where you don't have the time to force him to, to work differently or work him over to the point where you could slow him down and finish him. He's going to have that advantage in these situations. But he's also going to have the advantage when Masvidal makes the mistake of letting him flurry with these arm punches that will pepper and annoy you but not hurt you and not look to punch back until Thompson has finished punching. The way to beat a guy like Steven Thompson is when you get him into that punching range and he starts punching, punch with him because he doesn't hit hard enough with those punches to damage you unless you've got a shaky chin, and he doesn't take punches very well. Masvidal hit him few and far between, but when he hit him, it visibly affected him, made him backtrack and move away because he didn't want to be in those exchanges. Those are the things you got to take away from this fight if you're Masvidal looking forward if you get this fight again, or if you're somebody who's going to match up with Steven Thompson in the future. All right, Jeff, your thoughts on this one? The fight was, I think Thompson has a very interesting and unique style, but I mean, I see, I just see so many holes in it. And I think I was just frustrated that I think, Masvidal could have maybe done a little more to exploit it because um, Thompson was in front of him a lot with his defense wide open and his head wide open. And I don't know if he was uh, giving Thompson a little too much respect or not, but I don't know. I was kind of hoping and expecting him to, to seize on those openings more, which, I mean, he didn't, but... Uh, I don't really feel better about wanting to see Thompson fight for a title again, which is unfortunate because there was a time where, I mean, he looked like one of the more exciting prospects of uh, the welterweight division. It's really unfortunate that, you know, he ran into Tyron Woodley because just that matchup, it's just just that matchup. It's just so bad. I mean, last last night's matchup wasn't that much better, to be honest with you. I no, was so much thought. happier with this fight than either of the Thompson Woodley fights. Just yeah, like, I mean, if that's really like th- that's like, would you rather sit through being shot or would you rather sit through being stabbed? Yeah, I mean, look, if Rory McDonald were still with the UFC, uh, a, I think he would have beaten Tyron Woodley for the belt by now. But we also saw that Rory suffered when he had to deal with what Stephen Thompson brings, like. If it's not Tyron Woodley with the belt, I think Stephen Thompson is probably going to be able to take it from them. But it is Tyron Woodley with the belt, so such is life. All right, and kicking off the main card, Paulo Costa defeated Johnny Hendricks via TKO in the second round. Boy, this was not close. Um, <laughs> I seriously question what Johnny Hendricks is doing fighting at this point. Um Costa is a very big middleweight. He looks like he he's, was built in a lab. Yeah, he's he physically... Looks like he, he looks like he could... Novel cover, really. <laughs> um, Costa did a really good job of distance management and of patient shot selection. He opened with some really heavy body kicks that Johnny Hendricks was not happy about taking. He would... You know, land decent punches, but Costa's power is less one punch, end your night, and more kind of the John Lineker 
I'm going to hit you, and even if you kind of block it, I'm going to, you know, thud you. And he, he, you know, hurt Johnny Hendricks throughout the first round. In the second, the biggest takeaway I had from this fight, because Costa's also very green. He's young, and this was only his, like, 11th or 12th fight. When he hurt Johnny Hendricks in the second round and Johnny started throwing back, he didn't get wild. He didn't get reckless. Because there's a lot of guys in that position that will get into, you know, a toe-to-toe 50-50 brawl because, well, they're hurt. So, of course, I'm going to be able to finish them here, and I have to finish them quickly. And once they engage in that scenario, the coin flip doesn't go in their favor, and suddenly they're unconscious wondering, how did I lose that fight? He would hit Johnny and wait for Johnny to kind of cover up, try to throw back, and he'd back up just far enough so that anything Hendricks threw at him was going to miss, and then he'd clobber him again. He went to the body and head, which was I appreciated. He didn't just straight headhunt looking for the finish. And he, again, he took his time. A lot of guys, when they hurt someone, especially young guys, you get the adrenaline dump, you go after it, and you, again, you get wild, you get crazy. You don't, there's not really a fundamental understanding of time passing in that moment. If you really hurt somebody, you have a good 30 seconds or so to finish them before they can kind of get their bearings back, especially if you, you know, a good body shot can take that long. You rattle somebody's head, if they, you know, especially if they don't have the world's greatest chin. You've got time. You don't want to be stupid and let them off the hook, but you don't have to be reckless. And he was very measured going for that finish, so I appreciated that. There's still a lot that has to go in his development. Uh, We still need to see him have to fight for a prolonged period of time. There's cardio questions about him that, again, like he's only been to the second round. This was his longest fight, and it ended uh, a minute into the second round. How does he look after he's fought for 10 minutes? How's he going to do against, you know, a strong wrestler? How's he going to do against a decent striker who's not just going to cover up and pray that he goes away when they smack him a few times? Well, Hendricks is a, I mean, ta- I mean, decent wrestlers. Hendricks is a is an NCAA Division One wrestling champion, Robert. He is, and he was also so horribly outsized that I that I don't think he was ever in a position to really use that, even if his game plan was to try and get the guy down. Uh, I'm more curious how he would fare against someone like, you know, Chris Weidman, who's about his same size and also a very, very good wrestler. Well, he doesn't have to fight Chris Weidman next. He's, a, he's, a, he's way off from those fights. Oh, I agree. I mean, I, I meant that more as an example of someone who is, in his size, around his size physically, but also a very good wrestler, rather oh, than Johnny I mean, Hendricks, who is looked away class there, smaller. You can put him in there with like a, a, a fringe top fifteen or a Santos, uh, Yako, um, Tavares, someone like that, or even Tim yeah. Boach. Really, you can put him in there Brad with Tav- Boach. Brad Tavares or Tim Boach would so. be my choice because they're going to ask those questions of him. Right. Um, he reminds me of Hector Lombard, and I mean that in the most negative way possible. He could be, you know, he could be a, a Hector Lombard type. We'll see. I mean, he looks I like. I mean, I hope that's his... not the case. But yeah. the 
to me, the signs are there. I mean, I mean, certainly the questionable physique. Um, I'm not saying he's on PEDs or something, but man, it doesn't there look like a There are people who, physique. even if they aren't on something, look like they're on something, and he's he might turn out to be one of those guys, or he All might right. be on something. You know, look, you saw the talks about the eye test. So if we're going to talk about the eye test or the smell test, to me, he doesn't pass either. That's fair. Uh, Pat, again, you've mentioned that this guy just reminds you of Hector Lombard and, you know, both positive and negatives. This was your first time really watching him fight, right? Like, I think think you mentioned that the only exposure you had to him was me last week saying this guy is a young kind of wrecking machine. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. All right, so if you were uh, – let me phrase this differently then. If you were, you know, if he came to you and said, what what would you fix? You know, what's the first thing you would kind of fix about his game? What would you start with? He needs to be much less uh, mechanical. And I don't mean mechanics in the sense of these are what you build on to build yourself as a fighter. Everything he did was predictable in terms of his offense, and it was very one-dimensional. I didn't see a lot of variance in his game. I didn't see a lot of stuff that was necessarily an intelligent fighting move. I saw him fighting a guy who was there to be hit, a guy who was completely outmatched physically, and he still had a hard time putting him away, landing clean strike after clean strike. I haven't seen him go the distance. I don't know if he's gone the distance in a UFC fight. But if he's going to be in there with... Period. Okay. So I'm going to, A, question his gas tank in terms of, had Johnny Hendricks made it through that round, would he have had the ability to carry on and continue? Or would he have lombarded? Would he be able to do anything besides strike when he did get tired? Does he have a wrestling game where he could score a takedown and buy some time? or a strong clinch game where you can control his opponent and not necessarily have to immediately get back to work. There's a lot of variables out there. I'm not saying he has them, but if I'm judging by what he did last night, it doesn't appear like he either has them or if he does, knows how or when to use them. And I didn't see him striking effectively, even when he had Johnny pretty much dead to rights. And we can tell there was a point where Hendricks is definitely hurt more than he was through most of the fight. He missed like four consecutive strikes at Johnny's head doesn't, didn't go once to his body. And, and we criticized Bisping for that earlier against the guy who was visibly tired, even though it's not Michael's strong suit. But this guy's young and doesn't have these built-in tendencies the way a guy who's had, you know, a career of something like 40 fights would. All right, that's fair. Uh, again, that was the main card. Easily the best main card of the year to this point. Um as for the prelims, there's some weirdness here. Uh, James Vick defeated Joseph Duffy via TKO at 4.59 of the second round. This was a pretty good fight. James Vick still has a really bad habit of leaning with his chin up. It's what Dariush punished him for continually when they fought, and apparently he hasn't corrected it. He's got to correct that if he really wants to make a run, because there's guys who will consistently punish him for that. But um, but he's still got a very his his game is still very good. Just there's a few tendencies he really needs to fix because they're major liabilities. Mark Godbeard defeated Walt Harris via disqualification. 
This was the weirdest – this was not the weirdest thing of the night, mind you, but this was weird. They were in a clinch, and Walt Harris landed a knee to the groin. Mark Godbeer reacted like someone reacts when they get hit in the groin. He kind of broke from the clinch. He dropped a hand towards his nether regions because that freaking hurts. Walt Harris is a large, powerful man. The referee saw the foul and called time and tried to get, to get between the two of them and kept saying when he was literally right next to Harris, time, and he got pretty loud about it, Walt Harris still landed a head kick. Uh, it was slapping rather than really thudding, but again, Walt Harris is a big guy and he kicks hard. He kind of caught Mark Godbeer in the side of the head near the eye and the referee, and then he stopped because apparently he finally decided to listen to the referee. Uh, the doctor came in to check. Now, there was some a commenter actually asked about this, why they couldn't just deduct a point for the illegal kick, give Godbeer the five minutes to recover from the groin strike, and then restart the fight. There's an order of operations that goes into how fouls are done and how they are handled by referees. You do not have five minutes to recover from a foul. You have five minutes to recover from a groin strike. This is a function of a doctor's inability to examine you and make a medical determination after you're hit in the groin. That's what that is. Because this is being broadcast and they can't have a doctor come in and you can't strip down and let him double-check that everything's okay. They give you five minutes to recover as a compromise. If you get poked in the eye, you do not have five minutes to recover. The referee halts the action. Asks, some of them might ask you if you want to see the doctor, if they're generous referees. The doctor comes in and then makes a determination about whether he feels you can continue to fight. The referee will then ask you if you want to continue to fight. If the answer to both questions is yes, the rep fight resumes. If the answer to either question is no, fight stops, and you only have as long as that takes. The foul that the action was really halted for and the reason the doctor came in to check on Mark Godbeer was not the groin strike, it was the head kick, the illegal, obviously illegal, head kick. Because that was the foul in question, Mark Godbeer had to talk to the doctor during that examination, and then the doctor had to determine if he felt the fighter could reasonably continue. And because Mark Godbeer couldn't continue, the fight was over. It's the nature of that foul. If you get hit with an illegal groin, like, again, all groin strikes are illegal, but if you get hit with, an, if the groin strike had been the only thing here, yeah, he would have had five minutes to recover. That's the protocol. The protocol for any other illegal blow is not the fighter has five minutes to recover. Uh, it's a, Because groin strikes are the prominent foul in MMA just based on the way fighting goes, we all kind of had that drilled into our heads as, well, if you're fouled, you have five minutes, no, which is not the case. You have five minutes under a specific set of circumstances. All other fouls are conducted differently. That's what happened here. The head kick was what caused the fight to be stopped. 
so that's what that's how things proceeded from there. The disqualification was the right call under these circumstances. Walt Harris should be ashamed of himself. The referee was pretty much literally in his ear yelling for him to, you know, yelling time. That's about as bad as it gets. You really need to have more discipline. Um, Ovin St. Prue defeated Corey Anderson via head kick in the third round. Look, Ovin St. Prue is never going to be champion. He has just never realized a lot of his potential in that respect. But he kicks hard. He's a big guy. And he's he still frustrates me a little bit because I look at him and think, you know, you should have been so much better than you are. But he's still he's still okay. I mean, what really made me sad was these two were both top ten light heavyweights going into this fight, and I couldn't come up with a reasonable excuse, given the UFC's roster, for either of them to be out of the top ten. That division is a wasteland. Randy Brown defeated Mickey Gall via unanimous decision, 29-28, 29-28, 29-27. This would have been a very serviceable fight on a Ring of Combat card. Um, as a UFC huh. caliber fight, huh. yeah. Brown had a really dominant first round. I had it 10-8 for him. Gall got a reversal in the second, and Brown's bottom game is pretty weak. In the third round, Brown got on top again and was content to kind of ride out the round this was just lower-level MMA. There's good to that, and there's bad to that. On Fight Pass, Curtis Blades defeated Alexi Olyanik via TKO. This was a doctor stoppage at two minutes of the second round. We had another instance of a potentially illegal head kick. Um, in the second round, Curtis Blades launched a kick at Alexi Olyanik's head when Olyanik was on his knees. Curtis Blade should thank his lucky stars he was not an inch closer. Because if he had been, the fight would have been over and he would have lost. As it stands, he made grazing contact, which was enough to get the fight halted because you kicked a guy when he was down. Like, you can't do that. But the blow itself was not damaging, was not a determining factor in the doctor subsequently stopping the fight. Blades got lucky. That really needs to be said. That was a shockingly reckless attack he launched. And kicking everything off, Ricardo Ramos knocked the stupid out of Eamon Zahabi in the third round with a spinning back elbow. He landed that shot once, and Zahabi really wanted to get, get it back. He kind of pushed forward. He tried to flurry. But... Much like with Joanna and Rose, if you throw something, be that just showing it or actually hit it, connecting with it, and they don't do something different, throw it again. This time, you know, once more with feeling. Hamos threw that spinning elbow a second time with a lot of feeling, and he absolutely ended Eamon Zahabi's ability to spell dog. I mean, this was a scary knockout. Uh, all right, that's it. Uh, again, there was some good, there was some weird. Uh, and the worst thing on this card was Brown versus Gall. And if that's the worst thing on any card, I'm kind of happy. Uh, Pat, I'll start with you. Do you have any burning desires from the set of fights? 
Um, it showed that CM Punk should never fight ever because he's really bad at it. Because Mickey Gall beat him really easily. And Mickey Gall showed last night that while maybe there's potential for him to make a run later on, he's not anywhere close to being a very good fighter yet. And yet he had the easiest time in the world with CM Punk. And that just makes me laugh because CM Punk is garbage. All righty. Jeff, any thoughts on those fights? Anything you wanted to touch on? Thank you, Randy Brown, for derailing the uh, Mickey Gall uh, hype train. I think Mickey Gall is a good prospect. Uh, I think he is someone to watch, but I think he was walking around acting like his crap don't stink because he beat CM Punk and Mike Jackson, two guys who really had no business being even in an octagon at all. And, um, you know, look, you're 4-0. You're 4-0. What have you really done? You've beaten CM Punk and Mike Jackson. And, okay, you beat Sage Northcutt. Okay, good job. But, like, you're not – you're not like a, you're not a top star. You're not a main eventer. You're not a champion. Okay. You've had five fights, get some actual fights, get some wins, uh, and really, and really prove yourself against some good opposition before you, you know, you're acting like you're, you're the, you know, you're the next Chuck Liddell or something. Uh, besides that, a uh, good win for James. I hope he gets a good fight next. And, Preston went over, you know, Ovin St. Pru. I think you had a good assessment of him, Robert. And otherwise, uh, go, go Astros, um, Astros number one. Yeah, there's a perfectly valid argument that Mickey Gall is 0-1 against guys who actually should be in the UFC. <laughs> Just throwing it out there. Um, all right, that was UFC 217. Thank you to everyone who commented who read without commenting thanks to those who took the time to answer my you know survey question about michael bisbing's title reign i don't know if i'll be bringing that feature back but i didn't get reamed for it so i might uh, i thought it would be a catastrophic failure but i'm literally risking nothing by asking a question of people who take time to read what i write so thank you to everyone for reading uh Perpetually humbling and baffling in equal measures. Next Saturday, um, I think we're going to talk about prelims, guys. Uh, I think we're going to do the first fight and then just maybe burning desires from the rest. Um, it's not that this is a bad card, but I'm really struggling to. A, with the live time we have left, anyone listening live, we're down to about 13 minutes. And B, just like anything really kind of being worth digging into in any great depth here. But the main event, uh, Dustin Poirier and Anthony Pettis is a pretty good fight. Uh, Anthony Pettis has had the weirdest like up and down run I've seen in a while. It's just It's so weird because... He was so good for a really long time, and then he lost a decision to Clay Guida. And you, know, you know my opinion of Clay Guida. But he rebounded by beating some good guys. And Jeremy Stevens, he knocked out Joe Lozon, he knocked out Donald Cerrone, he submitted Benson Henderson, he submitted Gilbert Melendez. And then Rafael Dos Anjos just told everyone, hey, this is how you beat this guy at an elite level. 
And then Eddie Alvarez basically did the same thing. And then Edson Barboza actually struck with him for three rounds and just beat him. Then he dropped to featherweight and had a back-and-forth fight with Charles Oliveira that he won. Then he decided to try for the interim featherweight championship, and he got smoked by Max Holloway. Then he comes back up to lightweight. He beat Jim Miller. Jim Miller's a little over, more than a little over the hill at this point. It's just been a weird ride for Anthony Pettis. As for this fight, these guys are both – this is interesting because – Poirier will get into a brawl. Um, he's not the best brawler in the world, but if you're a below-average brawler, he'll beat you there. He's a really good grappler, and he's got really solid elbows from top position. He's only got one loss in, jeez, he lost to Connor. He's only got one loss at lightweight. That was uh, when he lost to Michael Johnson. This is a this is a really good fight. I just God, I'm actually leaning towards Pettis. I think too much of what Poirier does as a fighter plays into what Pettis does well. If Poirier is smart, he will punch to close distance and then get this thing to the ground because Anthony Pettis is accepting of being on his back. And I think Poirier is a good enough grappler to neutralize any of his sweeps or escapes and punish him from that position. But if he tries to engage, you know, striking with Pettis, which is what I think he will do, I don't think he wins those exchanges. I might be wrong, but I'm I'm just leaning towards Pettis here. Uh, Jeff, what are your thoughts on the main event? How do you think this goes? Uh, I like the fight a lot. I think it's a good matchup. Uh, I think... Uh, I like Poirier here a lot. I think look, Pettis is a counter striker, and I think to, to deal with a fighter like that, you really you have to close the distance, you have to get in his face, and don't give him, don't give him any room to breathe. Don't let him uh, find a rhythm, and um, try to take him down. Pettis is a fairly, I think, underrated guard. I think he 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 is pretty good off of his back. But Poirier is an exceptional grappler than he is a striker, though he has made some, I think some improvements in his overall stand-up games over the years. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to be an exciting fight and uh, yeah, I'm glad it's the main event and gets five rounds. Cause this could be a, this could be a good fight, but uh, I'm going with Poirier here. All right, Pat, uh, you've been rather critical of both guys in the past. Deservedly so. Um, what do you think? How do you th- how do you see this one going? This is a good fight because of both guys' flaws. To me, the biggest thing here is that Poirier's vulnerabilities play stronger to what Pettis likes to do rather than vice versa. Uh, if you look at how Pettis was beaten by guys like Dos Anjos and Alvarez, it wouldn't be the same way Dustin Poirier is likely to approach this fight. And Poirier is not as technically proficient on his feet as Max Holloway or Edson Barboza. Poirier, meanwhile, if you look at the fights he's lost, he's been knocked out by Michael Johnson, knocked out by McGregor, beaten up pretty badly by Cub Swanson, and had that back-and-forth sloppy fun affair with uh, the zombie. Those vulnerabilities are much more likely to play into what Anthony Pettis likes to do And I think because of that, we're going to see Pettis win this fight. 
to me, the one thing that Poye has to be able to do is if you generally can weather the first real offensive storm that Pettis throws at you, mentally he checks out a little bit, and you can take advantage of that with pressure. I don't know that he's going to get past that. Poye has uh, been very vulnerable to punches. Johnson got him with punches. McGregor got him with punches. Pettis' punching game is not exceptional. His kicking game is. But if he can get to you with his hands, he can get to you with his feet and knees too. And that's what you got to watch out for, and I think we're going to see. So I lean much more towards Pettis than I do Poye. But because Pettis is a mental midget, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility he loses. I'm just leaning towards him because of, like I said, the style matchup and where the vulnerabilities play into. All right, our co-main event is our offering to the violence gods. Matt Brown is fighting Diego Sanchez. Uh, this is Matt Brown's final fight in the UFC. I don't know if this is just he's done with the UFC or if he's completely retiring. I think he's mentioned he's just kind of done. Which is, if if that is how that plays out, you know, a lot of thanks to Matt Brown for overachieving and being a guy who was never in a bad fight. I don't want to break this down technically all that much because of the following reason. If you are picking Diego Sanchez to win a fight in 2017, I don't know what to tell you. Sanchez beat Marcin Held in a non-trivial upset. Uh, He beat Jim Miller, and Jim Miller's on his way out. Other than that, he's been finished by Joe Lozon and Al Iaquinta. He's coming off of that Iaquinta loss, which was bad. These two are going to get in each other's faces, and they're going to throw leather. They're going to throw elbows. They're going to throw knees. And it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. But Sanchez has always been an undersized welterweight. His chin is shot. His whole game is figured out at this point. And I think Matt Brown is going to push him backwards, and Diego Sanchez can't fight backing up. This is well documented. And I think he's going to put him away. Pat, you – am I wrong about Diego Sanchez here? I mean, do you, do you give him any chance in this fight? Oh, I, I, give, I give him a chance in that Matt Brown is going to be there to be hit and look to make this a fun going-away party for himself. So when the guy is, is standing in front of you and willing to let you hit him, there's always a chance that you can win. I just don't think he's going to win because he's not any good and hasn't been for a long time. And Matt Brown has the motivation of, this is my last fight. I want to go out on a high note. And generally, Diego Sanchez doesn't fight well. So I lean towards Matt Brown. Why Diego Sanchez is still there, I don't know. Diego Sanchez is proof that length in the UFC doesn't mean that you're very good. All right, Jeff. Your thoughts on Matt Brown potentially hanging him up after uh, hanging him up after this fight? Matt, uh, thank you for giving us uh, another loss to Diego Sanchez on your way out. And uh, I'm sorry, you know, you just didn't get to that upper echelon uh, during your career. But I always enjoyed watching your fights. Uh, and you were called the Immortal for a reason, so show us that one more time, please. 
Okay, that's the last one I want to go into in, you know, anything approaching detail, but I want to point this out. On this main card, you have Diego Sanchez fighting, who I don't think you can pick under any circumstances. You have Andre Arlovsky fighting. He's in the next fight. He's fighting Junior Albini. Uh, this goes so badly for Andre Arlovsky. Junior Albini is 14-2. and two. Uh, he's, He hasn't lost since 2012. He smoked Timothy Johnson in his UFC debut. He has a, I believe he has a legitimate boxing background. Uh, I, again, I believe he does. Uh, did, you know, I know he boxed a lot in Brazil. I don't know if it was amateur or professional level. Uh, th- this goes so badly, but you have Andre Arlovsky. In the next fight down, you have Nate Marquardt fighting. <laughs> and he's fighting uh, Cesar Fajaya. Good grief. How can you pick either of those two? Well, wait, wait probably... there's more. Uh, the next fight down is actually a pretty good one. It's Rafael Asuncao and Matthew Lopez. This is a really no, good fight. that. Skip that. You know what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, yes, I do. I'm just pointing out that the next fight down is actually relevant. Um, Lopez has only lost to Hani Yayan. I believe he took that fight on short notice. Uh, he's won his last two. He TKO'd Johnny Eduardo, which is not an easy thing to do. And you got Austin Sal, who is one of the most underappreciated guys in the UFC, despite I think he should have lost to Marlon Marais, but still, again, just underappreciated. Then kicking off the main card, you have Joe Lozon versus Clay Guida. I don't understand. Like, did they – this has to have been a card put together by Joe In 2012? Silva six years ago that he left in a drawer, and someone at UFC headquarters just happened to find it today when they were setting this up. Like, that, that makes no sense. Like, and then to make things worse, the main event of the prelims is another bantamweight is, fight that is awesome. Is the best it's, fight on the card by a significant margin. It's John Dodson versus Marlon Morais. I think Marlon Morais again. I thought he beat Rafael Asuncao in his UFC debut, and that's not easy to do. Yep, he's an exceptional fighter. There's so much good about his game. I am really looking forward to seeing how he rebounds from that Austin Sal fight. And John Dodson's always worth watching. Like th- That's a great fight. Um, the rest of the – okay, for the record, for my picks for this, it's Junior, it's Albini, Fajaya, Austin Sal. Jeez, Lozon and Guida. That's so bad. Guida. I can't pick Guida. I just can't do it. I hate him too much. Pick Guida because the fight sucks and it doesn't matter. So pick Guida because he sucks and doesn't matter. So it makes sense. Hang on. No, no. Lozon lost his last fight to uh, Stevie Ray. So he's going to win this one. So Joe Lozon. (laughs) Joe Lozon's up and down nature and fighting is as reliable as death and taxes. So he'll win this one. is a good fight. Yes. That's a really good fight. Yeah, it's it's Um, one of... Two good fights buried by just why? Weird. Yeah, Poirier Pettis is a good fight. Asuncao Lopez is a good fight, and the rest of this card is trash from like six years ago. 
I'd accept Brown and Sanchez just because it's Sanchez going away. Or, excuse me, it's Brown going away. So make the most entertaining fight you can. The rest of that is head-scratching to me. Um, anyway, uh, the rest of the prelims. Again, you have Dodson and Marais. I lean towards Marais, but boy, is that a good fight. Tatiana Suarez and Vivian Pereja. Um, Pereja is undefeated. Oh, Suarez. Suarez is kind of a beast, though. I'll go with Suarez there. I haven't seen Pieja have to fight a really good wrestler yet. Um, Sage Northcutt is fighting Michelle Quinones. What the hell is this card? Um, I'll go with Quinones because it's Sage Northcutt. Uh, Angela Hill is fighting Nina Ansaroff. That's actually a good fight. Um, That's a good fight. Hill... Yeah, Hill came, coming off that win over Yoder. Ansaroff kind of hit her stride, though. Yeah, that's a She's pretty good fight. I'll lean win. towards Hill. That's a good win. Uh, on the prelims. Fight. Not a great fight, but a decent matchup. Yeah, it's a good fight. Uh, on the prelims, we have Court McGee still hanging around. I mean, I love him, oh. but... <laughs> again, I love him, but why? I, I actually thought he beat Ben Saunders, so there is that. He should be on a two-fight winning streak. Oh, or whatever it's worth. Uh, he's fighting. He's fighting Sean Strickland. Uh, Strickland got run Trash. over by by Kamaro Usman. Um, you know what? I'll I'll strictly go with sentimentality and pick McGee there. Cat, uh, we have a the word. You're, the term you're looking for is cab drivers. That's that's the point yeah. you termed on the show. It is. We'll go with cab drivers. Thank you, Jeff. Sadly, only Michelle Quinones is the confirmed cab driver. I um, was going to say, speaking of cab drivers, we move to light heavyweights. Yeah. Um, Jake Collier is fighting Marcel Fortuna. Where the winner of this um, fight is automatically in the top ten. Fifteen at a minimum. Um, Collier was fighting at middleweight before this. No, he, he moved up and lost to Devin Clark. I'll go with Fortuna. Why not? And kicking off, kicking everything off, Darren Stewart is fighting Carl Robertson. Um, Stewart had that somewhat memorable in for uh, UFC debut when he skated by on a no contest after he and Francis Barbosa knocked heads together that led to the finish, uh, but also smoked him in the rematch. And if if Robertson wins, he's going to be able to afford the T that would spell his name to make it Robertson instead of Robertson. And Robertson is undefeated. He's only 5-0, though. Um, He won on Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series. I think I saw that one. He He won in 15 seconds via knockout with elbows. I'll go with Robertson just because Sure. Like, I got nothing for those two. I literally have nothing. That is a coin flip in my head. All right, Jeff, I'll start with you. Everything after the, you know, the top two fights, what are you looking forward to on this card? Uh, I mean, any burning desires you have? This card would automatically be better if you just took off the FS1 prelim. Excuse me, the uh, Fight Pass prelims. Just by doing that, you automatically have a better card, I think. You cut your trim. You, you know why? You're, tr- you're trimming the fat. 
know? I would, it wouldn't take six hours. <laughs> um, That's not a joke. That's the average UFC card runtime no, from first prelim no. to main event sign-off. It's like five no, hours and 47 and a half minutes. I mean, and, and, that's, and that's why I was talking about a couple of weeks ago. You, need, I, you know, I, there are probably at least 50 guys on the roster you can just cut. And just and and cut down some of the events, and you'll have some stronger events overall. Uber needs um, work yeah. too. <laughs> um, I like Dotson Marais a lot. Um, that's a, How could a you legit not? fight. It's a legit it's a great fight. fight. And, and um, as you guys stated, the most exciting division in um, maybe in the UFC right now, I guess. Um, I think Hill and Ansaroff is, a, you know, not a great fight, a decent fight. Um, so yeah, they're on the prelims. Those are I think, the more the two more notable fights. I think will be good. I wonder what I set the over under on for commentary referencing Nina Ansaroff being uh, married to. Why am I blanking on her name? Amanda Nunes. Yeah, thank you. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they're married at this point. But that always gets brought up as though it has some kind of relevance. <laughs> well, um, all right. maybe maybe it's interesting to ha- that, you know, you have kind of like a, a two-wife couple both fighting in the – You have that already. They're, they're Rose Namajunas and Pat Barry. Pat Barry doesn't fight yeah, in the UFC. Yeah, but Pat doesn't fight in the UFC anymore. Yeah, he's still a wife who did fight in the UFC. Fair. Uh, all right. I mean, Pat, again, I mean, anything well, outside Pat of the – Gets, I mean, Pat's kind of like her coach and trainer. He gets talked about in that room. I mean, you know. I mean, when he's there, you know. So, I mean, you know he's there. Yeah, and again, if uh, if Amanda's in her corner, I care about it much less. Like, okay, that makes sense to kind of bring up. But it's like, a this is weird. Robert, fa- like, this talk, is a holdover from Mike Goldberg filling time on a broadcast. Like, here's this random yeah. factoid about <laughs> half of this fight. I mean, it means nothing. Robert, Robert, Robert. It, 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 that's exactly what it is, but you need that crap on commentary sometimes because look, if you look, if the fight sucks, se- we need it. it I understand you have to five, kill time. I just like look, it's well, the I mean, weirdest thing. And Sarah has. What else can you really say about her? She's she's one and two in the UFC. Her record is abysmal. You know, she's really. I mean, I mean, she's coming off a good win. I'll give her credit for that. But I mean, there's not. I mean, what else can you really t- – you can't really talk about all these blistering wins she's had in her career because she, she, hasn't, she hasn't really done much, you know? Uh, to be fair, she beat Juliana Lima. That was, that was cluckied. Oh, yeah. Uh, fair enough. But, no, no, I, again, I get it. It's, it's one of those, like, things that, like, if you're you, – I am surprised they haven't come up with another way to fill what would otherwise be dead air is all. Anyway. All right, Pat, again, outside of the top two fights, so whole rest of that card, any other burning desires you have, anything you want to touch on? I mean, the clear winner is Dotson Marais. You have uh, not just a great test again for Marais in a different kind of opponent, but John Dotson is clearly a UFC-caliber top-10 bantamweight with the X factor of some significant punching power the kind Marais hasn't seen yet. It'll be interesting to see how he deals with that, how he fights a guy who's been in with the very best at Bantamweight and Dodson. Um, and, and if Marlon can win this fight, it's a huge step in a positive direction for him. If Dodson wins this fight, Dodson reemerges as somebody who's got to be talked about as a contender. Uh, 
other than that, uh, you know, Hill versus Ansaroff is a, a good fight in terms of action. Um, yeah, that's that's basically it. Otherwise, um, I look forward to seeing uh, Jay Collier or Marcel Fortuna win this fight and thus automatically be entered into the raffle for a light heavyweight title shot. Watch that fight go to a no contest now just because just because why not? Um All right. I will be trying to hold my sanity together during that night of fights. Hopefully they're good. Like I I always say this when I think the card like looks bad. I really hope I'm wrong. I so hope we get a good night of fights because I hate watching bad fights. I would rather watch good fights, but I'm not going to color my analysis with optimism if I think it looks weird if it looks like a weird card and this is a weird one to me but hopefully they're good so i will have coverage of this in the mma zone of 411 mania uh jeff was there any news items you wanted to touch on before we close up shop here it's not official but daniel cormier versus uh volkan ustamir is in the works for the light heavyweight title that's likely our next light heavyweight title uh fight Thanks a lot, John Jones, you freaking idiot. Ugh. John Jones being, you know, a fighting machine was the only selling point for that whole division. Now we're down to Volkan Uzdemir. Hey, you know, Uzdemir has, he's had some impressive performances. He has knocked some guys out cold. He absolutely deserves credit for that. All right, and I'm not saying he shouldn't get a title shot in this circumstance. It's just the light heavyweight division is the worst it's ever been, and, and, and it's abs- it's a chaotic mess right now. And it's all John Jones's fault. I think it's John Jones's fault. We realized it as much as we did. Uh, somebody, I think, it, uh, some, one of the commenters last night when I asked about Bisbing said that. He felt that one of the reasons he felt Bisbing was getting some unfair criticism was there's a lot of, I forget the exact word he used, uh, some derivation of the F word, but there's a lot of shenanigans that go along in other divisions. And Bisbing's title reign was guilty of said shenanigans, but it's far from even the worst instance right now of that happening with a title in the UFC. And it made me think of light heavyweight because it's such a wasteland. And somebody brought up, you know, you, you know kind of like you did, yeah, thanks, John Jones. And my response is partial. Again, like John royally screwed the pooch. I'm not going to defend him. But there's problems with that division that he had that are absolutely beyond his ability to control. Well, he can't. Con- they lost. Uh, he can't control the fact that the UFC can't seem to find an exciting 20-something guy in that age range that they can build and, you know, let marinate they, and be a, be a top-tier look, fighter for the next four they years. Should have kept, they should have kept um, – there are a lot of guys that, that, who were good at light heavyweights they let go that they should not have either. Yeah. And, like, and uh, maybe they're not the most exciting fighters, but they, they gave legitimacy to the vision – um, and they were, and they were good, at least good high-level gatekeepers to test, you know, your up-and-comers. I mean, can you imagine if we actually had Ryan Bader in the UFC? I mean, sure, Bader isn't fun, but 
he could be in the title picture right now. Like, <laughs> I'd have, I'd have rather had Phil Davis. Another, yeah. I mean, yeah. again, just like there's so much wrong with that division, <clears throat> and some of it's on John Jones because we should at least have still be enjoying the best run of maybe the most talented fighter the sport has ever seen as an as an inter, as an interesting factor. Instead, we have Daniel Cormier, who's a Daniel Cormier is a great fighter. I don't want to sell him short. He's a great fighter. But he's also like 39. And the average age I think of a U, of the UFC top 15 in that division is over 30. Who's, who's to, in that division in the legitimate top five? Can we look at the rankings and uh, yeah, see who me, the top five here are? We, here we go, right now. Alexander Thank Gibson, Volkan Uzdemir, Glover Teixeira, uh, Jimmy Manoa. So Uzdemir, he knocked off um, Serkunov and um, Manoa. Um, oh, at number And five, then Shogun is five. <laughs> need I say more? Shogun is number Good five. Good God. All right, let's just – before we get rid of flyweight, let's get rid of 205. <laughs> Ovid St. Pru is number six, and Anderson is number seven. Yeah, that was yeah. six and seven battling last night. And the truly set, tragic thing was I looked at that ranking, I looked at the UFC roster and went, I can't argue this. Yeah, I mean, let's look, just burn 205. And look, Phil Davis wasn't always the most exciting, but he was giving he gave a lot of legitimacy to this division because of his athletic background, and he could do some really. Ex- I mean, you know, he was a very good grappler. Um, uh. Look, Elir Latifi is a top ten fighter. I mean, Patrick Cummins yeah. is number ten. Little Nog is still eleven. Yeah, this is just uh, a dumpster fire. I mean, even Krylov, who who was like a decent, you know, at least a very decent gatekeeper. Like Krylov you know, was also twenty four. Like that guy, and he he was exciting. He was exciting, and yeah, and he was young. So like, why yeah, why let a guy smoked, like Krylov go? You know, I don't. He get smoked it. like three or four guys in um, ACB, I think, since he's been sent at least one. He's had at least one or two fights but under he that was promotion. Smoking, I think he's he was won. smoking guys. He was smoking guys in the UFC too. So yeah, just like horrendous on every of, level. So, so that's kind of like why, okay, you you gutted your division, and now Johnson's retired. John Jones is a is a blithering idiot and, and is constantly sabotaging his own career. So, so while you've done that, you've gutted your division by okay. Well, Johnson retired. He, you know, maybe he comes back, but even if he comes back, he might want to fight at heavyweight. Then you let you let Bader you let Bader uh, and Davis go to Bellator, and you know again not the most exciting fighters, but they were at least they they at least gave legit credibility to the division, you know due to their skill set and abilities. But whatever. I'm, yeah, it's it's just the saddest thing in the world <laughs> to look at that division right now. Right, we've got Daniel Cormier, Gustafsson, and Uzdemir. That's what we've got. Look, you know what? It, it could turn around at some point. It's just going to take time. Because you it's going to take a lot of time and an influx of a lot of talent. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what? You know what? There was a time where the Astros 
was consistently year after year one of the worst teams in baseball. I love that this was a tie-in. The Astros, for for multiple years, lost over 100 games. But Jeff Lunau had a plan. He had a five-year plan. And he had a five-year plan. He had a five-year plan. What is it? Don't die? His plan was to was to rebuild the team and to grow young talent and grow that young talent and cultivate that talent and also bring in talented seasoned veterans who knew the game, who understood the game. So we had the perfect mix of cultivated young talent that was coming into its own and then, and then veterans uh, of seasoned veterans who have played the game, who know the game inside and out. And then Justin Verlander. So the light heavyweight division, it is poised to go through an evolution where it could become the Houston Astros of tomorrow. As you said, Pat, it's just going to take years and a lot of influx of talent, which isn't there right now, but it could happen. It could still happen just like it happened for the Houston Astros who had to wait 55 years to win a World Series, but daggum, they did it. Now, in all seriousness, as great as that was, Jeff, as great as that was, here's here's the thing with 205, and realistically, anybody between the weights of 185 pounds and two, we'll say 230 pounds, okay? The biggest problem is that, at least domestically, anybody with those size dimensions is heavily recruited to do two things, play football or play basketball. The outreach for wrestlers in, of that size range has greatly diminished because if you're close enough to that range, you're generally coached to bulk up and come in heavy and wrestle as a heavyweight or cut weight and wrestle at 170, 165 pounds if you're around that 185 range. They, the athletes from the range of 185 to like 220, they're all groomed to be football and basketball players and taught that this is where the money is, this is where the opportunity is. So the outreach is so strong for that in those two respective sports that it's so light in comparative to combat sports because you have the same situation realistically with boxing, again, at least domestically. Internationally, it's a little bit better where you have a lot of Russian grapplers who are that size that we're seeing more of, Krilov, Uzdemir to name two, but... Domestically, and again, the UFC is based in the U.S. They make their, a lot of money off of U.S.-based talent being able to be sold as homegrown and cut good interviews to draw people in. The outreach is not there, so the bodies are not there. And until it is, there's always going to be a lack of talent domestically. They need to go to these international markets. They need to go to Brazil. They need to go to the Netherlands and get some kickboxers. They need to go to Russia and get some grapplers. They need to outreach domestically heavy if they want any type of influx in that division. You know what? Boxing has a really good heavyweight superstar, Anthony Joshua. I just want to say that. I like Anthony Joshua, and I hope he's the heavyweight star that boxing's been eating for a while. He is in the U.K. He is, and he's a much, he is a... He is a breath of fresh air compared to Deontay Wilder. And yet, it, it bears noting. Jeff, I think you would look really good against Bermain Stavern. <laughs> yeah, I, look, there's a reason Wilder's ducking Joshua. Just put it that way. 
Um, yeah, I, I'm more worried about 205 instead of staging a turnaround over time like the Astros turning into the, and I apologize to anyone listening who might be a fan of this franchise, the L.A. Clippers. <laughs> no, that's, uh, it's just, I, like, honestly, that's the reason you you don't see the reach for the, the talent at 205. That's just what no, it is. It's true. Guys that, of that size are, of that are brought in to play football, lot... basketball. It's a reason there's so many guys at, you know, bantamweight to lightweight. Because people with a competitive drive and athletic ability of that size don't have a much narrower path to pursue that in life after, you know, college, for want of a better example. And MMA is very appealing in that respect. If you're a guy who's 6'3", you know, 220 pounds, and you can move... You've got a career in football in a variety of positions. Yeah. You and I watch, and Jeff, I don't know if you get to watch a lot of it, but Robert and I will generally watch a lot of the big collegiate wrestling meets, like the Big East Championships, Big Ten Championships. The most exciting matches and the matches where you really see the talent level there are 170 pounds and below. Because the guys who are wrestling, again, between 165 and up to heavyweight are guys who are split between wrestling and and football or wrestling and track and field as shot putters or wrestling is something else. Their singular focus is not on wrestling the way the young, the, uh, the lighter guys are. And so the talents, again, it's not even necessarily the, the talents not there, but the drive to be the talent and the top guy is not there right. because they're splitting interests. I believe we can see a reinvigorated light heavyweight division. Like the I sincerely athlete. hope we do. I genuinely do. <laughs> if, it can happen kind of the to... Astros, if it can happen to the Astros after 55 years, it can happen to UFC's 205. I will, I will yeah. also point out that one thing we didn't touch on from last night, right before the main event started, Robert and I were talking, and I said, is this comeback more Shawn Michaels in 2002 against Triple H? Or is it The Rock gassing out in five minutes and needing John Cena to carry him through the match? And we did see him gas, but it was much closer to Sean 2002 against Triple H. And it's only fitting that it would be that way since when George left, he was mocked on this show for losing his smile, particularly by me. That's very, that is very true. I, still one of my favorite things you've ever done. Uh, all right. On that note, thank you all so very much for listening. Uh, Jeff, what do you have to plug? All right. Check out my review of Thor Ragnarok, the biggest movie of the weekend. It's my favorite Thor movie that Marvel has made yet. The coolest version of the Hulk you'll ever see in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, so check out that review. Check out my review with Ballers star uh, Omar Miller. Uh, check out my upcoming interview with... Uh, UFC Hall of Famer Uriah Faber will be up soon. Um, and uh, check out my Factor Fiction from last week um, for the MMA Zone. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Jeff. I'll see you next week. Uh, actually, speaking of next week, before I go any further, because I might forget. Yep. Next week, we will be previewing Fight Night 121. Good Lord. Look, the UFC stacked the crap out of uh, <laughs> UFC 117 or 217. The next couple of fights, fight nights. Um, yeah, the main event for the 
show we'll be talking about next week, Fabricio Verdum and Marcin Tabora. And it only gets worse from there. There's a good light he- lightweight fight. That fight's not happening. It's Nick Lentz and Will Brooks. One of them will screw it up before they actually get on the scale. All right, Pat, anything you'd like to plug? Uh, unfortunately, I will not be able to join us next week as I normally would uh, due to some outside commitments. I do apologize to everyone for that. Uh, it's just a happy accident that it happens to be coverage of that card, I promise you. Uh, <laughs> uh, coming up in the next few weeks, uh, I'll be more involved with the Screaming Boy podcast from Ronnie Adams and Jesse Starcher that you hear live here on the Rattleition Broadcasting Network. Um, some fun things coming up on there. Uh, Robert, I will actually be joining you on Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on the Rattleition Broadcasting Network to discuss the aforementioned Thor Ragnarok. Can I tell you the best review I've heard of that movie? I haven't seen it yet. I'll be seeing it Tuesday before because I have $5 movie nights, movie days all day on Tuesday here. I'm not going to spend extra money unless I'm really interested. A good friend of mine gave me the following review of Thor Ragnarok, and I believe it to be the best review I've read, or I've heard. Shortest, certainly. He said it was the best movie starring Jeff Goldblum and Sam Neill since Jurassic Park. And considering that I don't believe those two have shared screen time since Jurassic Park, it left his actual feelings still still somewhat unknown to me. But uh, I appreciate Tom. He's got a great sense of humor. So I will actually see it. And, uh, yeah, look, reviewing that will be fun. I'm glad you'll be joining us. You might get to be the crotchety old man that Mark tells to shut up and have fun instead of me for once. I, I may just be. Uh, all right. As for me, again, t- this Tuesday, uh, Pat, Mark, and I will be talking about Thor Ragnarok on Damn You Hollywood. That should be interesting, if nothing else. Last Tuesday, I tortured Mark. Uh, he had to sit through Jigsaw. And, of course, so did I, but it was worth it. Uh, so you can listen to our review of Jigsaw. Uh, it's probably more entertaining to just listen to our review than to actually watch the movie. It's not good. It's it's just not good. Um, this again, this coming Saturday, I'll have coverage of Poirier versus Pettis. That will be a card. I hope it's good. Oh, I really do. Uh, we'll be back next week. It will apparently just be Jeff and I, and we'll preview Verdum versus Tabora. Also on that card, Beck Rawlings fights Joanne Calderwood. Tim Means fights Bilal Muhammad. Elias Theodoru fights Dan Kelly. Alexander Volkanovsky fights Umberto Bandene. Uh, Ryan Benoit is fighting. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those cards. Uh, that's all I can say. So thank you all for listening. I will see you next week. Uh, thank you for your continued patronage. Feel free to like the Rattletch and Broadcasting Network on Facebook. It's the uh, best way to stay up to date on things like that. So please feel free to do so. Uh, point your friends in my direction, the direction of this show, if you, they like the sport and want to improve their overall knowledge, point them in our direction. I'll we'll see if I can hook them. I will also happily give other resources if you listen to this and can't stand the sound of my voice. I don't blame you. And just where do you, you know, you want other Resources, I'm more than happy to provide those as well. I can tell you where I steal all of my information from. 
I, I know where I do. I try to credit them at every possible opportunity, but I know where I take it from. All right, until next time, everyone, for Pat and Jeff, I'm Robert. Please continue to be well, be safe, and behave. Thank you.